Ready to gestalted here? <laughs> yes. Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. We're going to start out today with a huge shout out to all of you who have been supporting this podcast and who have helped us achieve our uh, monthly goal. That's why we're back in the studio a week later because the show is now weekly. So thank you to the audience. Yeah. You are our sponsors. Um, I think I mentioned this on a podcast a couple podcasts ago. I've been rejecting, rejecting, rejecting sponsorships. sponsorships yeah, we mentioned that during because they want us to do like commercials for their thing and it's like yeah. I not only am I not interested in what you're trying to give me I know that our audience, our audience is probably not and either. like I just don't want to do that yeah. so I would love for this to remain a audience sponsored show you guys are making that possible and now the show is going to be weekly again so absolutely thank you to all of you who have uh, reached out and supported us on Patreon and Subscribestar those links yeah. are in the description if any of you would also like to uh, continue contributing. And um, we will talk about like another goal in the future. I don't want to do that today. I just kind of want to celebrate the fact that we're here. Sure, yeah. And uh, just say thank you to everybody. You guys make this possible. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move into our final episode of our near replicant analysis today. And for the most part, because um, we've, we've beaten all of the endings and did everything in the game. This was about focusing on some supplemental material. In particular, we, we both read Grimoire Near. Yeah. And it's a book that contains a lot of background information, but also a lot of interviews. Yeah, interviews. The team. Um, some extra little like notes, just like things just saying like this is what happened, but from people's perspective. Lots yeah. of stories. Yeah. Like little short stories about Emil or Kaine or Near. Yeah. So we'll dig into a lot of that stuff. I also listened and you read a transcript of the, the audio drama yeah. that came on CD. Um, that was actually quite different than what I was expecting it to be. I, I thought it would cover a lot of the same things that were in like the, like the more expansive timeline of what happens, but it's really more just kind of a single, uh, it, it builds up to more of a single event where all of the characters are involved in their the human mansion. That form. is so <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get into that. <laughs> and then on top of that, there's some more stuff. I mean, it jumps ahead a little bit to uh, Replicate Kaine, and then it jumps even further ahead into a time after the game ends, and Replicant and uh, Replicant Kaine and Nier are dead, and Emil is still living in this world with no humans anymore. It's kind of a funny little story. He fights some aliens. Um, <laughs> and then on the back of that, there's even like a a school drama little kind of silly scenario. I did not listen to that one, but it's in there too. Yeah, we missed that one. But. So anyways, lots to dive into, but um, mostly what I hope we can do today is clarify the last few sort of lingering questions that we had, mm -hmm. um, correct some of the things that we misunderstood, and um, like kind of get it all right yeah. in our heads based on what we read here. Um, and then respond to uh, uh, some comments from, from the viewers. Um, some really good points that were brought up in the comments this last week. Um, uh, stuff that, you know, and, and this is something I want to say uh, really quickly too. And, and hopefully this is for the most part understood. I, I think I've brought it before. We're treating this like a book club for video games, right? Right, right. We're not always going to be 
like the most knowledgeable human beings on planet Earth about whatever we're talking right. about in terms of this game. Some of you out there will have like, well, let's put it this way. I probably know a lot more about like Middle Earth lore <laughs> than like somebody who's read Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, right. I've spent a lot of time dedicated to reading and rereading mm -hmm. tons of Middle Earth lore. So I'm pretty knowledgeable about that stuff. Nier is a game that while I had played it in the past a little bit, I had not like completed it in yeah. the sense that we did this time. Right, me neither. So I'm learning a lot about it as I'm going, right? And so the audience is going to be able to contribute like a book club would, mm -hmm. things that I missed. So there are gonna be things that I will interpret on this playthrough that you know, I might misunderstand and moving into the next episode when I have a chance to read supplemental material like this, it's going to inform me Okay, like actually this is like this and this is like this. So anyways, hopefully that's understood. Like I'm not claiming to know everything about it and I, I'm, that's not the point. <laughs> I think um, based on the Final Fantasy VIII podcast, the yeah. expectations were at a certain point for Nier, whereas Nier is kind of a newer game. And that's kind of the thing. We, we more or less would be alternating between games that we have played a lot before and yeah. newer games that we... Yeah are having newer experiences yeah. with. And so the experience, like our level of knowledge is gonna differ differ from game to game, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I've played Final Fantasy VIII five or six times. Yeah. This is my first time really completing like Mirror Nier. before. Yeah. When we play Xenogears next, which is probably going to be the case, the vote for that will have ended by the time this goes live. Okay. But as of right now, there's one more day left and oh. it's, it's going to win. It's, okay. it's okay. pretty clear it's going to win. Yeah. Xenogears is a game I have played before um, and that I've looked into a lot before. So I will be more knowledgeable about Xenogears than I was about Neo. Yeah. Anyways, I don't want to like get lost on this point <laughs> too much. Other than to say like if your expectation is that like I'm going to get every single detail right every single time, that's not what I'm setting out to do <laughs> with this. Uh, I'm setting out to <clears throat> play through something, give an interpretation of it and fix and correct things along the way so that by the end of it we have a complete understanding. Uh, but that's a that's a kind of a two-way street between us and the audience, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a discussion. It's Which it's, is kind of how we want it to go anyways. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I'm treating this as if the audience is sitting with us in a circle in this room <laughs> and we're gonna get feedback from them and we'll respond cool. to it, right? Which is what this final episode is going to entail as we get into the comments at the end. So, <clears throat> hopefully that's clear. Um, I, I think, for the most part, what I want to focus on is in Grimoire Near, there's like kind of an extensive outline or timeline of events from like the moment that the Drakengard E ending happens. Yeah, 2003. All the way through to essentially the end of the game. Yeah, yeah. 34, whatever that is. Uh, 34, 70, something yeah, like that. It's yeah, it's like a, a way more than a thousand year time scale that we're talking about. Um, so anyways, I'm going to try to summarize that time scale and fill in some of the blanks and correct some of the things and um, yeah, fill in some of the holes or the questions that we had Kay. as we were playing the game before. Is there anything that you want to add before we do that? Or? Not specifically. I mean, about the questions that are answered, but I, I suppose we'll just kind of hit those as we go. Cool. Um, but yeah, I don't have anything to add. So... The book starts out 
with some like short little reports from a particle physicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's studying the body of Angelus, mm -hmm. uh, the dragon, right? They, 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 the Japanese government like grabbed that body when it fell from the sky and they're studying it, right? And he doesn't really believe the story about it, right? He's yeah. kind of like, yeah, right, this thing wasn't in the middle of Tokyo. Because the government was kind of like suppressing it, yeah. just in general, right? Um, Before and it slowly, he slowly realizes. I, I got the impression that it, right? this was a woman. Oh, you know, you're right, actually. So yeah. I read a translation. What I read oh, okay. is an unofficial translation yes. from, from Japanese. And so yes. the male, female might be a little mixed up based yeah. on that. But I think you're right, it was a woman. Yeah. So yeah. she's kind of like, you know, skeptical, like you're saying at the beginning about like the the story that she's being told about it, as yes. I think most scientists would be, because it's right. really, really wild. It's freaking weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, but slowly starts to sort of unravel what's going on and then ends up contracting white chlorination syndrome herself. And yes. the last report is real funky. Where she says, I, I can hear sounds. Yeah. That's the and last thing The letters says. are all jumbled up, right? And before that, she says there's like a bunch of bells ringing. Yeah. She, yeah like very. a sound, and it's just like, oh, I feel sick. And yeah. so she contracts white chlorination syndrome while studying uh, the body of the dragon. So then after that, we get into some character bios. Um, and this is where I got the bad information about Fira being yeah. the wrong age. Being five. It was from <laughs> this translation that I had read of Nier, uh, Grimoire Nier. So mm. a lot of what we say, or a lot of what is read in that like Google translated document has to be taken with a grain of salt because there's probably tr some translation errors in it. it. Needs to be taken with a pillar of salt. A pillar of salt is true. <coughs> so just you know, <laughs> keep that in mind. But that, that yeah. doesn't mean it's not still like a, a decent you know, source of information. For yeah, it is a good source. It's just they never officially released it here, right? And so yeah. there's some, there will be some mistakes. Yeah. It's not like a super elite translation. It's, it's uh, novice level maybe, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so then the next section is called The Abyss of Project Near Volume 1. And it details how Japan tried to contain the spread of white chlorination syndrome by locking down Shinjuku, which is the district of Tokyo where uh, the, the queen beast and the dragon yeah. fought. Yeah, they um, build a wall around it. They basically quarantine yeah. the whole, the whole yeah. place. And so Nier yeah. and Yona, um, well, much, much later in the future, because this, this quarantine and this lockdown happens like probably like early 2000s, uh, early to late you know, 2000s or maybe. Yeah, this is saying 2008. 2010s, yeah. Oh wait, this is even before that. Yeah, like or before 2010, yeah. But 28, the wall is destroyed. But Nier and Yona, are kind of like in that area 50-ish years later, yeah. right? And um, they, I mean, Yona is sick, but they hear word of uh, the Salvation Support Plan, which is a front that yes. this organization is putting up to try to collect people to find a, someone who will be able to bond with Grimoire Noir exactly. and become a stable gestalt. Yeah, so they made a bunch of copies of Grimoire Noir, seeded them out to these like, um, sort of like uh, 
what would you call it? Like a soup kitchen or like yeah. a, a place for homeless people to go yeah. and kind of get help. Uh, but at the same time, they're they're scouting out people and they will give these people um, uh, one of these copies of the book. Yes. And the people touch it and they almost immediately die. They gestaltize right away. Yeah, it doesn't work. And then they kind of go crazy. Their, their gestalt turns uh, into a relapse shade and they start like attacking people and stuff. Yeah. And it's like immediate. And so, but they... As far as the government's concerned, they're like, we have to find some, somebody's yeah. going to work. They, they believe that somebody has the DNA sequence to where it will be a match. But they, in order to find him, they kind of have to do this really shady thing. Yeah. They just and trick so people. Nir goes there with Yona under the pretense that they'll have food or supplies. And he yeah. kind of figures out what they're really doing and he runs mm -hmm. away, but he has the books, right? And yeah, that's where we that's get right. the prologue section where he touches it and yeah. So that's turns after into, he has fled, right? Yeah. So a little bit of um, some filling in the details of what was going on right before that prologue happens, right? We'll get into that a little more too in a minute. Um, then it kind of jumps ahead to after the time skip, and it does some explaining about Replicant Mirror and Replicant Yona in the future, um, which you know there was some interesting stuff there, but I found the more interesting tidbits here were explanations about the Shadow Lord himself. Oh, yeah. Um, so there was an organization called the World Purification Organization mm -hmm. that was sort of heading Project Gestalt. Yeah. And they promised Gestalt near uh, the Shadow Lord, Shadow Lord, that Yona would be able to be kept from relapsing. Yes, but and... They'd have to put her in stasis or like yes. cryo sleep until for like the years. research developed to a point right. where a cure, a, a one-time administrative cure, could be um, delivered. Uh, they, I think, they were just hoping. Yes, they were like, put her down, and hopefully we'll create that. But they, they gave um, Shadow Lord near the impression that this they, was a thing. Yes. They, theoretically, it can work. We just need a little more time. Yes. That kind of stuff. And so he was thinking it, it will work, and then. Um, they were like, we have no idea how to help her. Yes. But it was making uh, Shadow Lord near like kind of crazy. Like the only reason he was going to comply with them was to save Yona. Yes. So they were in this weird conundrum where they were like, if we tell him his sister is going to die, he's, we're, humanity's doomed. Yes. Right? Like we, so they didn't know exactly how to approach him with that situation. And so they kind of just like lied to him and they kept leading him along. And oh, we're almost there. Oh, Akira is so close. Like we're almost there. Yeah. And like years later, he's like, where's the cure and they're like yeah. they finally I think had to come clean and, and tell him that well maybe in a thousand years there will be a cure. <laughs> <laughs> and he he wasn't happy about it but at least he he was willing to do it for Yona you know they're yes. like maybe in a thousand years we'll have a cure just hold tight till then and he at least Yona didn't die right then yes so he kind of had to play their game he had no choice yeah so a couple of key things there is it was like it wasn't like a direct lie, but it was definitely a half-truth. Yes, exactly. They gave the impression, like you said, that maybe theoretically, we just don't have... Yeah. We don't have it totally figured out, but we, we are confident that we we're going it. to get there no. when they weren't confident about this at all. No. Basically, they had no, they had no clear, like, confirmation whatsoever that a relapsed shade could ever be saved once it had started relapsing. That's true, yeah, yeah. They, they, it, and that's something that's confirmed by Yoko Taro in some of these interviews too, that we'll get into later, is that once a, a, a shade or a, a gestalt to start relapsing, 
it's over. Like right. not even like forcing them back into their bodies will stop the relapsing process. You have to take only stable ones <laughs> and mm -hmm. put them back in. If it starts relapsing, it's over for them. Yeah, they will die. They were, eventually, it, they're gonna die. Yeah. They're gonna go crazy. And so they have that, they kind of know this, the, mm -hmm. the scientists, but they don't tell him that part. But, right. but, they, but theoretically, maybe we could find a way, so it's not a total lie. It's so, it's um, <laughs> are you aware of who Elizabeth Holmes is by chance? No. She started a company called Theranos, and it uh, does this kind of thing where, uh, there's a big documentary about it, but she could take one drop of somebody's blood and then read it, and you could determine whether someone's gonna get cancer, whether they have Alzheimer's-like potential, or whether anything is wrong with them, just on one little drop. Her idea, the technology never worked. She never yeah. actually had the technology. It was a complete like fraud company that was worth billions. It was worth so much. Wow. And she was like the first female self-made billionaire. Kind of, it was a big, she was on the cover of Forbes and yeah. it was a big deal. And it all came crashing down and her whole thing was like, you fake it till you make it, right? Mm. So I, she was like, oh, we can do this. And she's like, of course in 10 years we'll be able to do this. So. And then 10 years pass and still still can't do it. And finally, the whole thing came crashing down. But it, it's that kind of idea that I think a lot of people fall into yeah. of like, it's going to happen, so I'll just say that it's happening when it's totally not true. Yeah, that was kind of the situation here. And so the reason that they needed him was because he was the first, like we said previously, stable gestalt. So Gestalt who's not as, relapsing. As far as they know, and they may, they may be right in this, he's the only one. Yes. He's the only one that would not relapse yes. initially after touching Grim Renoir, like yes. originally. Uh, there probably were others, but it's like how you gotta kill everyone to find out who who it works for. Yes. And they'd already killed tons of people to find out that he worked. And I guess they just didn't want to do that over and over and over. In addition, his body produced like uh, a very like, concentrated, maybe not concentrated is the right word, but like they 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 describe it as a solid maso. Yeah. I don't know if solid is the correct translation yeah. necessarily. Say high grade. But, but the idea grade. is it's it's a it's a, a type of maso <laughs> that they need to keep other gestalts from relapsing. From relapsing. Oh that's right. It kind of delays it. That's right. Yeah. So they need him desperately to keep the Gestalt project alive right. because without him all of the gestalts relapse so any any new gestalt that they create they can use the maso that he produces to stabilize them in Initially. their cryo sleep yeah, yeah. Yeah. right now they discover over the many years that follow even these start to break down over time it's not like right. it's not truly like they're not truly stable even from the maso he's producing it's mm -hmm. slowing down the process of relapse it's not totally stopping it which is why you're getting all these relapse shades in the game itself yeah. when you're playing it all those years later, right? Even though the Shadow Lord is still there producing this muscle. Mm -hmm. So, that uh, is that. Um, oh, and then this was something that, I don't know if this is necessarily confirmed in the book, but it was an idea that I thought was interesting from somebody in our Discord who uh, posted this in the podcast chat in mm -hmm. the Discord. Um, so we were asking about why does uh, Yona in the prologue get the black scrawl? That doesn't make sense. She's not a replicant, yes. right? Because that's unique to replicants. I have the thought here, yeah, but let's hear what you got. So his um, idea was that she was becoming gestalt type. Yes, that is true. Right? Yes. Yeah. So her body wasn't contracting the black scrawl necessarily. It yeah. was changing into a shade. 
like okay, like yeah. kind of like how um, say Kaine looks when you fight her as a boss mm -hmm, yeah. when she's all shade like. Yeah, it's like. Yona's body was transforming in that moment into, into that. that. Now they don't actually show that in the prologue because that would give away oh, the right. big what the shades are. Secret of the mm. fact that we're not yeah. seeing the same people 13 or 1400 years later. Mm -hmm. Right? So yeah. like they kind of like cut away from it before you see Yona like actually transform. And okay. that made a lot of sense to me. I could see that as being well, in part because it is said somewhere in this in this book a lot. It's, it's pretty long. There's a lot of stuff there, but um, that um, this Shadow Lord Nier is a Gestalt from the moment he touches Grimoire Noir. Yes, that he is now a Gestalt. So yes. when you start playing as him at the beginning of the game and you're using all those attacks, he is already basically turned in. the The separation of body and soul has already taken place. Yes. He is a Gestalt. Yes, and so I didn't know that, right? But. Um, yeah, he is a Gestalt, and for the rest of the game, even as he's talking, he can present like a normal person. He can still be around and everything. It's, it, he looks, for all intents and purposes, he looks still looks human. Um, well, he still looks like he has a physical human body, where he actually is a Gestalt. So. Yeah. Yeah, so th that means that, same thing with her. When she touched it, she became a Gestalt. Problem being, she relapsed immediately. Yeah. Yeah, which is what most people did when they touched Grimoire Noir. Right, and that's why yeah. there, there are shades attacking you in that mall or that little shopping center mm. because those are people who were also being handed out books and they were yes, exactly. they were gestaltizing and they were relapsing immediately into shades. Yeah, and that's like this whole district that they were in was part of this program that was like putting on a front to help people, but was really like in a kind of a desperate search for a stable gestalt. Mm -hmm. So, anyways. Really interesting background there on the on the prologue puts it all together for me. Um, so this is something I just wanted to say really quick. Um, there was somebody who asked if we uh, if we would talk about the significance of the name near, which oh, he was French saying was a French word, right? Because like, like um, false or what does it mean like? Um, yeah, I, I looked it up and it, it was deny on denial, Google Translate. Denial, that's it. It means denial. Yeah. It's probably where the word nihil um, comes from, N-I-E-L, anyways. Um, and, and, you know, like how that works into the theme and whatnot. And I, I don't want to, like, discredit this person's, uh, you know, takeaway from that, that personal interpretation of it. I think it's a fine interpretation. But one thing that I did notice in <laughs> reading Grimoire Near is that many of the names are they feel completely arbitrary oh, sure. and as just homages to other things. Okay. Like there's a lot of names that come directly from Peter Pan or Pinocchio. Oh, sure, But yes. like, or even like uh, Yona's- Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, Yona's name is from the book of Jonah in the Bible. Right, it's Jonah, but they say- But Yona, as yeah, far yeah. as I can tell, there is no connection between the character Yona and the prophet Jonah in terms of what they yeah, what those stories are. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> and and I, I've struggled to find any sort of meaningful connection with many of the names. Uh, so I had heard that Yona was a name for somebody else that they decided to keep for the girl at an earlier like stage yeah. of development. And then the name kind of stuck yeah. for her, but it wasn't relevant, but they liked the name. Because yeah. like, you know, you have like Weiss, which is German for white, which yeah. makes sense because it's the mm. white book. And noir, which is French for black. And German, it's both. 
but yeah. Is it in yeah. German as well? It is, yeah. Oh, I thought somebody in the comments had said that it wasn't. They had, oh really? Okay, yeah. I may not have read those comments. It was a couple of times ago, the guy was saying well, like, noir is not black. We can at noir. least say noir is definitely black in, in French. French. <laughs> yes. <laughs> noir. So. Uh, I don't actually speak German. So. <laughs> so in any case, it's white and black, right? So like those make sense. Those are purposefully chosen. But there's a lot of names where it was like, I don't, I don't really get it. Like, let's see if I can pick out a few. So like, mm. uh, the mother of Gideon and his brother, I forget his name, the older boy. Oh yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. Their mother's name is Blue. Not that that name ever comes up in the game, but her really? name is Blue. But, but get this, it's named after the Blue Fairy in Pinocchio. Okay. But like, there's it's no just connection. It's literally just the color blue. Yes. It's, huh. And like, uh, the, the lover that she runs off with is named Carlo, which is Carlo uh, Coyati or Colati, who is the author of Pinocchio. Oh, okay. Right, but like, I'm not, so I, Italian I don't. Italian name. Right, like some <laughs> of these names just feel pretty arbitrary as just like, oh, I like Peter Pan, like, uh, Wendy is the name of the big circle shade in the area that you fight towards the end of the game oh, when, yeah, when, they get, yeah. when it gets nuked. Mm -hmm. It's Wendy from Peter Pan. Why that thing is called Wendy, I have no idea. Hook, the lizard yes. monster after Captain Hook. Hook yeah. You know, um, there's, there's a lot more like that. <laughs> um, even like some of the, the names of the people from Facade are just like German numbers. Um, mm. The number six is like the, the real name of the king of Assad. Fira, uh, oh, okay. which is based on Vier, V-I-E-R, the number four in oh, German. Okay. Um, the, 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 what's his name? Like his like main guard guy is like the number nine in German. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just like, why, who knows? Um, there's the boss fight in the Baron Temple against a monster called Shariar, or Shariar. Shariar, which is the king from the Arabian Nights. Well, Shariar right? means way in Arabian. Okay, that makes sense. Shariar. Uh, but like, it's, it's actually written in huh. there. It's interesting how the name of a foolish king from the Arabian Nights that takes on and executes numerous wives yeah. is used as the name of one who chooses a king in this game. So it's like, I don't know if there's like a real thought out significance to okay, some okay. of the names chosen necessarily. Sure. Right? Given that Nier is the name of the game, I figured it would be more denial for the player themselves. That I you, could see You that. keep playing this game, you're in denial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So there could be. Uh, there, there could, could be. be. But there's also a lot of naming conventions that seem to me to have no significance. And so what? I wouldn't read too much into it. And there's a couple of places, even in these interviews, where he's like, sometimes people are reading too much into things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, again, his philosophy is not the thing itself, it's what it makes you feel. Yes. Right. But but it is his fault that people are reading <laughs> so much because he released this book that clearly shows this intricate pattern behind everything that he did, connecting two different games together. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I keep bringing this up, but Tetsuya Nomura is in the, the similar boat um, as Yoko Taro in that Sometimes things don't make sense, but it's there it, and they, they think maybe people read into things a little too much, but yeah. it is their fault. Sure. And they the, invite this. The last piece of evidence for why I feel this way is mm -hmm. while they 
you know, go through the, you know, the, the bother, I guess, of like telling you this name was inspired by this or this or this or this for like all these characters. Yeah. On Nier, they say Nier's name has no specific origin. Oh, they said that they, in like, the book? They, they actually write that well, under like the Nier character bio. This name has no specific origin. But Yona is from the book of Jonah for some reason. Yeah. And this is <laughs> named after a Peter, Peter Pan, Pan character. Uh, huh? they, they actually have Kaine's grandmother, Kali, as oh, Curly. It's, it's Curly. Oh, well that's how they in, would say it in Japanese. In Japan. In, in, well, that's how Kali. it's translated in this document. Right? And I, could, I, could, I can hear that, because that happens a lot, where yeah. that sometimes the English translators are looking at the, the phonetics and yes. they, they, they have to kind of guess. They kind of guess like at it, right? The name Cloud was, I believe, supposed to be Claude. C-L-A-U-D-E, Claude. Uh, um, but, but when it was translated Cloud, they were like, they liked it. And they were like, that's <laughs> pretty cool. But the name Curaldo is also the same characters for the character in um, uh, Star Ocean 2. Star Ocean 2, yeah. second story, his name is Claude. But in Japanese, it's Curaldo. It's the same, same as Cloud, name. but it's the same kind of thing. It's kind of an homage going there. but yeah. So anyways, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's a, a significance truly to the name Nier or not. According to this, there isn't, but I, I'm not okay. saying that to like discredit anybody's like interpretation, like, you know, the word denial in French having right. some significance to the games like nihilistic or Nietzschean sort of like. Sure. It's not out of the messages. realm of possibility. It's just sure. when they were presented with an opportunity to say if it meant something, they said no. They said no. <laughs> <laughs> so make of that what you will. Okay. So then the book goes into the second part of the abyss of Project Near, so volume two, and expounds a little bit on something called Project Snow White, which was the series of experiments that created Emil and Halua. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and this was carried out on like children that were being used as like soldiers to combat Legion and Red Eye. Yeah, so there's a reason mm. for this. So there's this, it, there's this substance that they would inject people with that was derived from some type of magical property. It's called Luciferacy or something? Lucifer. Yeah, yeah. It has it's the like name Lucifer medica in it. medication. Yeah, yeah, but it's a little liquid injecting thing that, that gives people a boost and it only came about after they discovered magic and they determined that they were able to use this substance to slow down the spread of white chlorination yeah, like syndrome. like impedes. Yeah, yeah, it impedes it. They told people it was a vaccine that would keep them from getting it. That was a lie. Yeah. That was just, it just slows it down so they can do what they need to do and then they will eventually die. Um, but uh, it's, it's this specific substance and they, they mention in the research notes that the younger the patient is that receives this, the is. more effective it is, the better it works. And so, you know, before you know it, we're in Emil and Halua's kind of world, mm -hmm. and you know, based on what you'd read before, you know exactly why there's a bunch of kids here being experimented on. Yes. It's because the adults just don't handle these experiments very well, and the kids do, which is very unfortunate, but yeah. Yoko Taro likes to do crap like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it gets into that a little bit, and then um, it actually, uh, I, I, an interesting note I took here is that it states uh, pretty, pretty much straight out in Grimoire Nier that Emil has feelings for Nier, like romantic feelings. He, he likes Nier. Right? Oh, really? Um, and Kaine does... But he does also thinks of him as a brother, right? 
Yeah, but like he's has like romantic feelings for Nier, and Kaine mm. does as well. Yeah. And that's something that troubles her specifically. She's like, Oh, with Emil. I like him, and I know that you like him too, and we're like brother and sister right, buddies like that camp yeah. out and stuff, and this is really awkward. That's funny. Uh, I don't know if Emil knew that she liked Nier. Oh, probably not. Because Emil, she doesn't yeah. give that impression necessarily. Yeah. She keeps that close to the chest. Yeah, it was too innocent. He wouldn't have picked up on that. But it it bothers her, and it's something she worries about that she mm. knows Emil also likes the same guy that she likes. Uh. So there you go. Uh, it's a lot more straightforward, and even in the interviews, he he straight up just says yes, Emil is gay. He is because there was the question of oh, Emil, we don't really see these gay tendencies come out until after. He is um, in Halua's yeah body yeah. basically, um, and they're saying, "Hey, is, do you think Halua's femininity is influencing his perception?" And Yoko Taraka laughs at it. He goes, "No, Emil's gay," and it was like an exclamation <laughs> point. It's like, "Ha, yeah. Emil's gay!" Yeah. Exclamation point. Like, okay, okay, fair enough. So he puts that to rest, and then with yeah. Kaine. Uh, the next question comes up, well, does Nier like Kaine? Because Kaine likes Nier. Mm-hmm. And Yoko Tarok was a bit evasive on that one. He, he wouldn't definitively answer what, what Nier felt because he said Nier's story is about his sister yeah. and, and how he feels about her. It's not, and as to the extent that there is ending D or something mm-hmm. like that to where Nier would sacrifice himself for Kaine, uh, he says specifically that is more for the player, how the player feels about yep. Kaine, not so much how Nier felt about Kaine. Because yeah. Nier's story is all about his sister. And right. it, it doesn't, Kaine is there, he may like her, he may not, but his sister is his like, number one goal. Yeah. And so the ending B is all about the player. Yeah. And you know, it's, you know, it's interesting the way he did that. Yeah, I, I, and yeah, I have some notes on that too. Uh, we'll expand on that a bit more in the okay. future, but yeah. Um, it also goes over Fira's background a little bit. She was abandoned as a child. She had burn marks on her face yeah. um, before she came to Facade. Um, I don't remember reading it in here. I might have just missed it, but there were some people in the comments talking about slavery or she was like forcibly taken and like sold um, or something like that. Um, I don't remember reading a, any I, of that in the book, but somebody I didn't mentioned see that. that either. I just saw maybe that it's her in one parents, of the. Sh- it's probably one of the short stories. Now that I think about it, well, I, I read the short story. Did you read all of them? Well, I skipped over the 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 junkyard, <laughs> <laughs> but I read Fira's story and okay. her her okay, thing about so song of fruit and stuff. Yeah. Okay, I didn't read all of them. So okay, I, I read Fira's. She did mention. Um, about how her father didn't like her very much and she was kind of an impedance, Im, Im, impediment to his business. And okay. she would uh, revolt the customers as they came. So he oh, kind of wanted of her, her face. to, because she didn't look nice. He wanted her to stay up in her room all the time um, and he didn't want her out and he was pretty rude to her. But I don't recall anything about slavery. Okay. So I don't know, that could just be uh, somebody misremembering. Or it could be a subtext thing that's like, <laughs> how did you miss this? And I'm like, I don't know. Anyways. She's following a rule, so she's not mute, right? It's not that yeah. she cannot speak. She's following a rule of Assad that states that people without a family registrar in the city are not allowed to talk. Yeah. So she's using body language, using the sign language to communicate, but it's not because she cannot speak, it's because she's following a rule that says she cannot speak. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting little tidbit about her. Yeah. 
and the, yeah, and the reason why she wears the mask and why she's so comfortable and why she even stays in facade, given that it's kind of a weird place. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in facade, like everyone in facade, they, they aren't forced to stay there. They can leave yeah. whenever they want. Uh, they, they are there of their own volition. And in the case of Fira, and my guess is the case of a lot of people in facade, they, they have some disfigurement of their body and wearing the mask and the shawl and everything that they wear, it makes them feel safe and comfortable to yeah. be around other people. Mm. And it's actually kind of like helpful to them to be in society. Whereas Fira, without the mask, she felt the need to, you know, be away from everyone all the time. Yeah, That story was very good. Um, one thing that I noticed but didn't end up saying in the podcasts is after the time skip, I mean, you, you go to the junk heap and you, like you see Gideon as a young boy in flashback when his brother dies and that whole traumatic thing. Yeah. But then when you actually see him grown up, he's got this like mechanical arm, basically. Mm. Like, he's got like a machine arm. Um, and it was something I meant to point out but never did. Um, but apparently he destroyed his own arm. Like he self-inflicted that hmm. due to the trauma of pulling his own brother's arm off. Ah, so it was the arm, scene. it wasn't his whole body. Yeah, it was just his it arm. It was just the he arm pulled his arm out, like out. And so that gave that him some like... It, it, he was like punishing himself. Yeah. Sort of for that, right? Oh, and so man. he destroys his own arm and now he's got this artificial machine arm that he's made for himself. So I've said multiple times, like I don't have tons of sympathy for Gideon. I found him an annoying character, but that yeah, that's built a little bit in me. It yeah. was like, that's kind of, that's really intense, right? Yeah. Um, a very, very scarred uh, child who lost his family, his mother and father and his brother at a young age and uh, just did not know how to cope with that trauma, right? Also, the fact that he cut off his own arm, that may, I mean, this is just a, a Bible verse, but if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, right? Yes. Like there, there's some general idea, ancient, ancient idea of, um, you know, do away with that which has done wrong and rid it of your life so that you can be pure in some way or whatever. But yeah. also the fact that he won't admit that it was kind of his fault yes. that his brother died. But at the same time, he cut off his own arm after that. And I know it's he pulled his brother's arm off, I understand that. But you, when you do something wrong, one of the first things most people do when they know they've done something wrong is they look at their hands. Yes. And I don't know why, and maybe because they're shaking or people, and this is in movies a lot, but you, you, like, you look at your hands and you're like, what have I done? It's just the classic thing yeah. to do. But it's almost as if you're, you're second guessing if your hands are even actually doing the bidding of your mind, right? You're like, what are these things? This, this isn't this isn't me, these are someone else's mm. hands, right? Mm. This, my hands wouldn't have done that, right? And recognizing your own fault in someone else's death yes. could lead you to, in extreme cases, I suppose, yeah. to uh, cut off your own hand because mm. you, you can't accept that, that you your hands this. are the ones that did this, yeah. So that is, in some way, him accepting that he did that to his brother without mentally actually really accepting it. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, then it goes into uh, the Abyss of Project Nier Volume 3, which uh, mostly gives details on the, the bosses you fight, the shades and the bosses that you fight in the game. And this oh, is right. where I learned that uh, a lot of these giant shades are actually amalgamations of numerous gestalts. They're not just one gestalt. Yes, soul. which we learn about Wendy as well. That, yes. that one's fascinating. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, shades can clump together. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and like Hook, for instance, absorbed 
like relapsed shades into okay. itself. And so it kind of grew stronger and more powerful as it continued to just absorb more, you know, like relapsed shades into itself. Mm -hmm. um, but this is actually something that's detailed a little bit more in the episode Mermaid short story. Right, uh, like in the yes, in yeah. the game episode Mermaid, um, you're not in Kaine's thought. She's not like a point of view character because mm -hmm. you're, you're still playing as near. Yeah, yeah. But in the short story, it does put her for a little bit as a point of view character mm -hmm. where she's recognizing this is a shade, right? And Tyrion is sort of talking to her. Mm -hmm. You get that moment where he's like, oh man, like this is a really powerful one or whatever in yeah. the game. But in the in the short story, she sort of thinks about or re recalls, or it, it sort of details how she came to know that some of these big shades are like multiple gestalts or multiple shades in one. And that's like, the more that they mm -hmm. combine, the more that they fuse, the dumber they become or the less right. sentient or the less, uh, I guess, like intelligent they become, but the more powerful they become. Now it's not like entirely that way. It's like there are some exceptions. Sometimes one might be more powerful with less. But the whole point of that was to speculate on like the fact that this shade is super powerful like that and has is big mm -hmm. but is not a culmination of shades like that. And so there was something very different about mm. the girl Louise as a shade to what she had been to what she had typically seen. Mm. And so it was it was a different anyways, but the, the short story goes into more detail on the fact that big shades like that the really berserk giant ones are generally many, many shades fused into one. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and, and they're described as taking more joy in cruel acts, right? Uh, this is why Hook like relished in the, the slaughter of like the people of the area and Kanye's grandmother yeah. and things like that. Um, same with uh, Wendy, like you said, the the one in the yeah, area. Yeah, it was the shades all, and the shades, that one was um, in the case of the shades not feeling like they could compete against us and doing it in order to form something that could kill us, basically. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of the shades had um, taken over some of the replicants, right? So they mm. were kind of dragging them along with them. Yeah. Um, okay, and so here's a big clarification uh, from, from last time. Um, I'm trying to think of like how much to, to go into on this. So uh, maybe I'll save that part for later. But, you know, like I said, uh, this is kind of a first playthrough for me. So I'm, I'm basing a lot of my thoughts, especially in the last podcast, on what I take from the scenes I'm seeing, right? I haven't read mm -hmm. every single piece of supplemental material right. yet. So the way that that scene came across when you have like the death of Rock, who is the wolf pack leader, uh -huh. um, there's the old man there. Like my impression of that, which is, it is kind of a vague scene, was that that was the human soul that had fused with the wolf, the, sorry, the human soul in a gestalt form. Right. That it fused with the wolf and made like a shade wolf. Because we didn't have any idea that you could gestaltize animals. A not, a not human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But that's not true. So this wolf or dog, right, had been alive during the time when they were gestalting things. And the owner had gestaltized the dog instead of himself. And so the dog is a gestalt of a dog, not of a human. Mm -hmm. And so like 
this dog was alive 1300 years ago when the area of facade was bountiful, rich, it had forests mm -hmm. and, and things like that. It wasn't a desert, right? So when it's speaking about, oh, our home has been changed into this, that's the experience of only that gestaltized wolf leader, pack leader, dog, rock. The other wolves with him, I would suspect, are normal wolves and were not there and did not experience what this place was yeah, like they before. they were probably 10 years old. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, I guess I just, I copied exactly what is written in there. So I'll just read the description as it is straight from the document. The leader of the pack of wolves that take up the residence in the desert is rock, right? As one that gathers the wolves, it is a mixture of nobility and severity. 1300 years ago, the leader of wolves used to be a dog. It was raised by an old man and underwent the Gestalt process, gaining eternal life in the place of his owner. Due to its fond memories of the old man's care, it wishes to live in peace without coming into conflict with the humanoid replicants. However, it understands that those replicants have deprived them of their habitat and killed many of their comrades. In the end, it realizes that they cannot coexist and leads its pack on a battle to end all battles with the replicants. So its um, sympathy towards humans was based on its relationship with its owner. With the human. Not the fact that it used to be human. Okay. So that's a clarification. Um, there was somebody who was uh, a little bit upset with the last video who tried to tell me um, it's not that hard to understand. It's in one of the um, it's in one of the uh, weapons stories, right? <laughs> um, so the weapons stories are all detailed in this book, every single one. But are you aware of how you unlock weapon stories in the game, the menus? Um, not it, well, yes, because I did see kinase, but you not. have to upgrade them. Yes, exactly, because there's different levels, and then you read the story throughout the levels, right? Upgrading weapons in Nier is the most tedious, well, it means long, you have to go back to Gideon, stupid, right? grindy process yeah. of all time. There is only three weapons that I actually bothered to upgrade all the way to level four. Oh, really? And even that took way more time than I thought was worth doing. Um, but there are, I don't know, 30-something weapons in the mm -hmm. game, and you have to grind for very obscure, like the Phoenix uh, weapons, for instance. They require, like, eagle eggs. There is one place, one place mm -hmm. in the whole game where you can get eagle eggs, and that is in the airy, in that spot below the home of the elder or whatever, right? Okay. Like, down on the level below that. Right. So you have to run in, climb all the way over there, climb all the way down. Oops, that wasn't an eagle egg because it's a rare drop or whatever, mm -hmm. or a rare spawn. Sometimes it can be something else, like clay or something else. So you have to run all the way freaking back out and leave the area so that it will spawn again, and then come back in and do that again and hopefully get an eagle egg. And you have to have like, I don't know, 10 eagle eggs total if you want to upgrade all the Phoenix weapons to level four. That's BS, I'm not doing that. Right. <laughs> I'm not doing that, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And, and there's a lot okay. of rare like materials, right, that are needed to upgrade these weapons. So if someone's gonna sit here and like disparage me for not, first of all, unlocking every single freaking weapon story in the game and spending like a hundred hours upgrading weapons, yeah. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing it. So anyways, but the weapon stories are in the, uh, the Grimoire, Grimoire. Here, so you can read them there, right? And like I had said in the last podcast, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to read it next time. 
Anyways, that's just a little bit of a rant on my side, but don't expect me to grind for 50 hours to learn every <laughs> single freaking thing about the world, people. <laughs> Let's be reasonable here, okay? All right. <clears throat> so that's that. Uh, the clarification on hook. Or not on hook, on rock. On the dog, yeah. Um, so this was, I think, Rebrum, or Rubrum, the red. The red book, Grimoire yeah. Yeah. is the name of it. Uh, just kind of yeah. copied its description too. One of the sealed books, it sleeps within the depths of Emil's mansion. A gestalt was sealed inside, granting it powerful magic. However, unlike Grimoire Vice and Grimoire Noir, it was not programmed to be able to understand and converse in human language and was limited to support those two books. Its name comes from the word red in Latin, rubrum. Mm -hmm. So, Ruby. Kind of interesting. So, there were like 13 of these books that were made. Yeah, and there's uh, that story. I read that story um, about how the, the books all came to become unique and have different names and stuff. And yeah. It's pretty crazy. So um, Grimoire Vice um, actually was friendly with Grimoire Rubrum when they were humans. Yeah. Before they became the books. And um, then they put all 13 of these people, and they all spoke different languages except for Vice and Rubrum into the same room, like an octagon, <laughs> and then said, okay, you guys all have to kill each other, basically. Yeah. And each of them had a book that was a blank book. They couldn't even open it. They didn't know what to do. Uh, but the hope was that one of them would figure out how to use the book to kill people. Yeah. Now, the first one to figure out how to do it was actually a woman, but then someone else killed her. <laughs> and then that person died too. And anyways, they all ended up killing each other. The last two people were Grimoire Noir and Grimoire Vice. And for a reward, um, they also both just got, but everyone who died got absorbed into their book. Yeah. So as soon as they died, they were absorbed into their book, and the, the woman um, actually saved Grimoire Vice. She pushes him out of the way, and then she dies and becomes Grimoire Rubrum, which we then um, kill in Emil's yes. mansion, so using Weiss, Vice's power. So there's a lot of uh, tragedy involved going on here yeah in multiple this. levels and throughout multiple lives basically like yeah she died in her normal life then she died again as part of this book's life spirit um okay this one i don't think we need to go over that um this is the i think the the giant shade that attacks nears village towards the end of act one. Oh, okay it's it again i just put it's an aggregation of many gestalts yes yes um so we've kind of gone over that already. Uh, this is another one. Oh, this is Mother Goose, which is the, or Goose, which is from Mother Goose. That's what it's based on. Which is the, the gestalt that you, or the, the shade that you fight in the Shadow Lord's castle that's the parent and is like, don't kill uh, the babies. Of course, that's why they're eggs. <clears throat> yeah, okay, but this Goose. one apparently is an aggregation born from the fusion of gestalt babies and their parent. So. Well, that's when she said, they gather to in. me, yeah, and then and they then turn they into the, the, the boar, right? Boar. So that becomes Goose. That's the name of that hmm. shape. All right, so after we get through all of that, then we get to the actual timeline of uh, Project Gestalt here. So um, one thing that I really liked, I, I took a quick note on this, cause, just because this felt so true to life, it's, I could see this happening. Um, when they decide to quarantine Shinjuku, um, it's, it's mentioned that there is a newspaper survey, which probably would have been local, um, that indicates that the majority of the respondents are opposed to this quarantining of the area. Yes. But the internet polls 
indicate that most people are in favor of it. <laughs> most, yeah, yeah. I thought it was like the globe, like the world. Yeah. Everyone in the world is like Japan quarantine. Everyone in Japan is like, come on, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not our fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the opposition to quarantining Shinjuku only really lasts until um, there's the kind of the first emergence of legion. So like yes. the first person who was infected who went crazy and started attacking oh, people. Yeah. And, and apparently attacked like a famous person, an important yes, person. Yes, killed a, a celebrity. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, even the people in Japan were like, like okay, yep, okay, lock them up, <laughs> lock them up. Seal it off. But of course, they end up breaching the wall of Jericho and the White Legion. This is probably a good time to explain because we talked about this in episode one a little bit, but here's where we can really get into it. Um, when, when people are exposed to this um, salty substance that yeah. is from the other world, uh, I guess it would be like the maso, maso or something yeah, like that. The maso particle. Um, they um, kind of, as they're about to die, they're, um, they are given the opportunity, I guess, sort of in some weird way, to create a pact yes. with the uh, god. Of the dragon say guard with god, but universe. yes, of the, of the different universe. Um, because the dragon had made a pact in that universe yes. and then had carried that the, the, the bindingness of the pact was carried across mm. um, dimensions to our world, yes. our dimension. And that uh, power, anyways, became a thing where you, um, you were able to, through the dragon's substance, which was spreading, you were able to um, make a pact with, with God to destroy all humans. Um, but if you refuse to do it, then you just die. Yeah. Right, so either you die or you become a red-eye glowy dude. Is it just red-eye whose eyes glow red or did they all have eyes glow no, red? No, it's, it's just red-eye. So they all mostly kind of just look like normal people. But right? the difference is that, and, and red-eye is a kind of a disease that's also <coughs> um, from the Drakengard universe because there's red-eye yes. bosses and things you fight yes, in this game. Yes, there were. But <coughs> the difference is... And they is were the watchers. They're a legion, but they're, they get to keep their intelligence and they are become like a like a hive mind of sorts mm -hmm. for Legion, so they can kind of organize so they can direct them and, and yeah, direct. Yeah. And so it's like Legion are just crazy. If They're you just berserk zombies, if basically. you stop or kill Red Eye, the Legion has no more direction. Yeah, right? and so they yeah. can be fought more easily. Easier, but a, a Red Eye, and there can be more than one. It's not just one person. It, it's it's like a special pact, an even more special pact, where the God like gives them the helps them retain their intelligence yeah. so that they can be a leader. So instead leader. of just letting them live, it becomes like a, they have some additional power yes. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was happening and it started in Japan and these, these Legion people were all spawning in Shinjuku or something and they were all kind of, um, you know, rising up and fighting against Japan and they eventually took over like almost all of Japan and they had to relocate all their all the assets to yeah, like, like the different islands. The, the emperor's Kyushu or the emperor's like yes, homestead is the emperor's moved. palace, and they had to move that and the government because they didn't want to move it. Yeah, but once but this all happened, they were like, "Okay, hey, get down," and they went to that the smaller island, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's called Kyushu. But Kyushu. Remember. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then that's when the Japanese um, people and government determined that it's the best thing way forward is to make an agreement with the United States. Mm -hmm. So the United States says, okay, then we're handling this now. And yeah, drops it was, it a nuclear bomb <laughs> on top very, of Tokyo. It was a very unfavorable uh, 
pact or, 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 or what is it called? It's not a pact. Um, a, treaty um, something maybe, I, alliance. I had a specific word for it. Yeah, the terms were not favorable. America was basically like, hey, you're going to pay for this. Like, you are going to owe everyone. A joint operation. Tons of money because this is your fault. And Japan didn't think that was fair to blame it all on them. Yeah. But, you know, that's kind of how it went. So everyone blamed Japan and America was like, hey, you know, you, you pay for the reparations and we'll come in and help. Yes. And so they were not, not fair to Japan, but at the same time, they didn't have a choice. And, and part of this, if I'm not mistaken, was part of this agreement was that they were going to take the body of the dragon to America. Yes, to study. and it was taken to America, which... The, the body of the dragon, then also like specific legion corpses and things like that that were taken ah. out of Japan for the first time to be studied. This yeah. is a one of the, not the only, but one of the ways in which this Maso particle gets out of starts Japan. to kind of spread a little more. Right. Yeah. Um, but they they kind of determine like they they can't save Shinjuku, <laughs> so they yes. they carpet bomb at first. That doesn't work. The, the population doesn't change. They're like there's yeah. still the same number. Still of people. same number yeah. of legion, and that's when they decide to nuke it. And, and that worked for a while, but uh, the book kind of alludes to the fact that nuking it may have de dealt with the problem initially, but it also blasted the, the, particles, yeah, the particles into the air, which then got caught on the jet stream and just kind of went all over. Yeah. And yeah, it went to China first, and that's where Legion starts showing up in China now. And then from that point on, it's chaos on the yeah. whole planet. Yep. It's not just Japan anymore. White chlorination spreads all over the world. Yep, all over. So um, <clears throat> this creates like something like a 30-year war against Legion mm -hmm. um, that is kind of ongoing. And this is where uh, organizations like Hamlin, which was an international organization, mm -hmm. kind of come in, where they have that, uh, what, it was called Luciferase, Luciferase or something like that. It's, a, it's, the, it's the drug that like, retards or impedes uh, yeah. white chlorination syndrome. Um, but yeah, I can't remember what it's called. But it's another similar. interesting thing is that like Japan didn't want to cooperate with Hamlet. Um, they kind yeah. of d mistrusted them and so they, they sort of started their own research based on similar things where they were testing kids and it's, it's that place, that organization in Japan that's like competing with Hamlin that mm. did all of the experimentation on Emil and Halua uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. Uh, because like, like you were saying, this drug is more effective on kids than it is on adults. Yeah, so they grab orphan kids and then they just kind of... Yeah. Um, so anyways, there are these special like uh, military squads or units that are um, injected with this drug, right? And it makes them like more resistant and so that they can fight better against Legion. They call them the First Crusade, the Second Crusade, you know, Third Crusade and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it gets up to like the 13th Crusade before they finally kill Red Eye. Yeah, in Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with... And from that point on, Legion is kind of powerless. Yeah. yeah. And so then that's when they start to feel like, okay, we wiped Legion out and we killed Red Eye and now that's over. And that's... About where the um, the story in the audio drama comes in, where yeah. Nier is born and Yona and, and and stuff, and so 
Apparently, Kaine's grandmother, the the the, yeah. the real uh, person, Kali. not the replicant, but Kali. Yes, the human. And her husband, so Kaine's grandmother and grandfather, the human versions of them, right? They were like soldiers or like instrumental Kaya. in yeah. fighting against Red Eye yeah. and the Legion, and they were part of that Thirteenth Crusade that killed, killed Red Eye. Yeah. Um, and that experience of fighting against Legion and Red Eye and losing their close ones, uh, their, their loved ones, was, it had like a really big impact on Kali. She used to be a very kind-hearted woman, but now she's kind of turned into this bitter person. And, and uh, But they've become part of like the world's elite. Like they're very wealthy and they're... They have private security yes. detail. And, and um, they're funding this organization exactly. that does the experiments on... On Emil. Emil. Yeah, they're so Kali is... Kind of so there was a couple of things I liked about this in the audio drama CD, and and one is that it really does a good job of establishing the fact that the replicants have their own consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's not like some copy of the original person. No, yeah. This is a totally Just different person mm -hmm. in the body who has yeah. a totally different personality and a different temperament. Mm -hmm. So Kali. The replicant was that like, you know, swearing, kind of like hard-edged, but yeah, really yeah. kind-hearted yes. woman. But the real human version of the character was very different. Mm -hmm. Very like, um, concerned about status. Very, uh, yeah. uh, just sort of like broken by what she witnessed in this, you know, right. this war against Legion very um, harsh and, and not very kind-hearted anymore, though she might yeah. have once been. Um, even Kaine herself, who, by the way, was not intersex. No, she was just a girl. Yes, so yeah. this was an error in the replicant yes. process. By making her a replicant body that yeah. was intersex, yeah. Yeah, so it was like an error in the process of recreating the replicant over and over and over and over again. Uh, that this replicant body is intersex, but the real person, the gestalt, was a woman. Mm -hmm. And she has a very different personality. She's mm -hmm. very submissive and more, you know, like sweet and kind-hearted and these sorts of things. Um, so it, I liked that dimension that the yeah, audio drama brought different. to it, where it's like this really sets in stone that these are totally different human, like totally different people, different consciousness, different personality. So I, I liked that about it. But one thing I didn't love about it how do I say this? Like, it felt more like they were trying to reach for an excuse to get all the characters back together. Definitely, again. they definitely <laughs> were. I this it, it it reminded me a little bit of um, Star Wars Episode Three. Yes, where Yoda is on the Wookiee Island. And, yes. Oh, and she's like, he's like, okay. You guys lost. We got to go, but you did a pretty good job, anyways. Good job, the mighty Chewbacca. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, oh that's Chewbacca. Chewie. Oh, it's Chewie. I know that and person. Yoda. <laughs> and and Luke made C3PO, and they're all connected. It's all <laughs> or no, no. Great. Anakin made C3PO. Anakin made C3PO. Even yeah. though C3PO is a stock robot, and there's a hundreds like him, but Anakin made that one. So it's that was like exactly what they're I all so connected and it's kind of cheap and it's kind of... Um, it's just a little corny. It is a little corny and especially... Now, Oops. 
can you possibly explain how, um, can someone possibly explain how Kaine was able to do what she did as a, as a human? So, um, according to the drama CD, because there's a little report that happens right after that, right? Mm. Um, well, let's get to that in a minute. Let's explain okay. like what happens. But yes, I, I, this is something worth talking about. Yeah. Um, the story kind of goes like this. Like, Nier is, you know, trying to take care of Yona. It actually has a, a pretty effective scene of them burying their mother at the beginning, which I yes, thought was really yeah. interesting. And he won't tell Yona that that was her mom. Yeah, like that your mom's dead, but like that's what he's sitting there digging a grave for their mother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Legion is supposed to have been gone now, but they, there's like this truck that kind of moves through and is like, stay inside your house. Like, we have a situation involving Legion. Legion? Like, what are you talking about? Legion's Dude, been dead like, for a I while. I thought Legion was dead, yeah. Um, so then that's kind of going on, and then they jump over to uh, Kaine and her grandmother and her grandfather, and they kind of build up, you know, the dynamic of that, mm -hmm. um, and kind of explain how they were once part of the military, now they're rich and whatever. And then you have Emil um, in, like, you know, the, the facility where they're keeping him, right, and you get some background on the fact that he has this power to, you know, petrify people by looking at them. And, and he has kind of a relationship with a woman researcher there. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's built on a little bit in the game and one of the uh, yeah. side quests. And one of the stories in yeah. Grimoire New Year as well. So it's kind of building all three of these and then it, 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 it's kind of brought together when the, the human of Tyrion, <laughs> um, yes, who was Yura, Yura something. Yeah, Yura, yeah, yeah. And um, he's like this ruthless military yeah. commander um, willing to kill people who disobey him, and he's like mm. kind of a demented, uh, evil uh, military guy, right? And so he comes to the facility where Emil is being kept and basically forces this, the, the researchers to hand him over. Yeah. Because he's aware of what's happening here. Um, there was a red-eye corpse being transported to a research facility or something and it awoke in transport and basically mm. Legion is like arising again. Right. Right. And so that's kind of the situation. Um, so he goes there and gets, uh, gets Emil, takes him to Kaine's grandmother's house. To the mansion, yeah. Because they're going to lure Red Eye there to fight it. Yona had been separated from Nier and found her way to this Mm -hmm. estate, this yeah. property. And Nier's kind of following her, Nier's trying to look for her. looking for her. And so what ends yeah. up happening is that they're all there in the same place. They're all there. And the description they give of that house makes it sound a little bit like Emile's mansion, possibly. Possibly. I don't know if that's 100% like... Could, could be, maybe not. But Emile was in the basement of that mansion, so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it was a mansion. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be like total... It, it's, 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 it's a fine theory because she was the one, Kali was the one funding this organization that did mm -hmm. the research, right? So there's definitely a connection where that could be that. Yeah. Um, in any case, it's, it's, it, it feels a little bit like an excuse to get Nier and Yona and Kaine and Tyrion and Emil, Emil all yeah. in the same place it's for but, a little but scenario. But they're human forms. Yeah, yeah. They're, and, and it, it, it was mostly fine for me until like, okay, so I guess we just have to explain what happens. 
They are yeah. not able to fight. They're using a P-33 unit, or a P-22, I think is what it's called. Right. A robot Which to fight it. Which is really good at hurting things that have muscle in them or something. Yeah. It's like it shoots a beam at them. And it's made specifically for fighting this red eye. Yeah. And it has the upper hand, and then it loses, and red eye's getting under control, and the squad can't fight it, and they're, they're kind of like, you know, things are getting a little out of control. Um, and then they try to use Emil. Yes. But he doesn't want to look because there's more things that he can see than just red eye. Yeah, he In sees fact, there are even good human soldiers soldiers on the ground. Yeah. And he's like freezing them in, uh, into statues as well. And so he's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And and he kind of loses it. Well, because they... They're, um, they're be he's, Yura is like pushing him, forcing him to do yeah. this. And he's, he, so he kind of goes crazy. So he's doing his thing. And mm -hmm. Yura is freaking out and realizes it's all going south and decides to desert. Yes, and so, so he just wants to leave. So what happens to him is he changes his name in order to avoid being arrested from mm -hmm. Ura to Tyrion, and he goes through the Gestalt process. Mm -hmm. So he, but then they find out who he is and they kill his replicant, so oh. he can't return. Oh, uh, okay. And so he, so he's not relapsed, right? But he's he not. he jumps from replicant well, to replicant. This is one of the big questions we had last time. Is um, you know, does a, does a Gestalt need to relapse to become a Shade? And that is not the yes, case. Right. That, they, that can be the case, but it does not have to be the case. Yeah, so he's yeah. he's never relapsed. Uh, yeah, Tyrion's never relapsed, and a lot of the Shades had not And relapsed. this leads into kind of another correction from last time. So we were, you know, a little bit foggy on, like, what happens to Kaine and Tyrion there in ending C&D, like, what, what's oh, going on. Oh, yeah. With the Shadow Lord defeated, and without the Maso he's producing, Tyrion is going to relapse. Mm, so Tyrion right. is aware, that's I'm right. going to relapse in this body and is trying to, as a last mm. moment, like, attempt to be selfless. He's like, these are the two ways that you can stop Kaine from, you can either kill her, right, and like free her mm. from this world, or you can do your, you know, sacrifice your existence or whatever. But in both cases, Tyrion's gonna die either way, but he's like, I'm going to relapse and she's going to lose it, mm -hmm. right? She's not, no longer going to have control because a relapsed shade is yeah. going to take control. So that's what was happening. So there, she's going right? to die no matter what. So either you kill her or you switch spots. Yes. <laughs> so oh, but anyways. one other thing to characterize what Yura had done, um, it is described later on in the book as a failed coup attempt. That yes. he was taking advantage of the fact that Red Eye was waking up and w of his current position to grab Emil and to kind of become the new... I guess to become the new savior hero of yeah. the situation so that he could then take more power within the government. Yeah. Or I don't know if he wanted to overthrow the current government, I don't know, but they described it as a failed coup attempt. And that's yeah. why, um, that's the wrong that he had done. Yes. Know, that he deserved his replicant to be destroyed. Yeah, so that's what happens with him. Now, after he takes off, Kaine's grandfather jumps in front of her grandmother to save her. And yeah. gets in, it gets crushed and impaled by the red eye. Right in it's front of Kaine. Very, very, very traumatic. Which is almost the same. Thing. It's almost like the grandfather is takes the spot of the grandmother in the game. Yeah. The grandfather is the kind-hearted, yes. more gentle person who is more sacrificial. Yes. And and she watches her grandfather die in front of her instead of her grandmother. Yes. <clears throat> and then uh, her grandmother is trying to tell her that there's something we haven't told you about. Mm -hmm the nature of who you are, right? It's very ambiguous, kind of vague, and then it gets taken by Red Eye and devoured. 
And this triggers something in Kaine where she mm. goes berserk and yeah. is actually powerful enough to fight and kill Red Eye. She basically tears it apart with her hands. Splits it open and yeah. takes the grandmother out. Out, yeah. Um, and is going nuts and, and can't control herself. So once Legion and Red Eye are defeated, is still kind of attacking people and stuff. And near yeah. in all of this, you figure, get the sister and, and run leave. away. Get away from this. Yeah, but it was a war zone. He describes feeling like there's something about these people. I don't know what it is. I've never met them before, but there's just something. I can't give up on them. And that was yeah. the part that came across as a little corny yeah. to me. It was like, he feels that a connection. That was done for the fans. He feels a connection. Again, the replicants are their own personalities. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, yeah, that's true. That's these true. different people, yeah. they're, they're not the same person. This is why this is corny to me. Yeah. This near and this Kaine and this, well, I guess Emil is the same, but. No, this, he is the same, actually, yeah. This Kaine and this near are not the same people at all mm -hmm. as the ones, the replicants that we come to know in the game. Right. These people do not have the connection. There's no reason they should have a connection. There's no, it hasn't even happened yet, and they're different people anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it felt like a corny way to try to bridge and yeah. be like, oh, in, in any lifetime we're connected. It's just, <laughs> I didn't love that. But it was still yep, interesting, and it filled in some gaps, um, and uh, it was mostly pretty well done, pretty well acted. It's in Japanese and stuff, but yeah, it was fun to listen to. Um, so that kind of leads us up to basically the Gestalt project near uh, and Yona touching the books. Um, yeah, and the Gestalt project was fascinating because I could see, like, you know, this has a very low chance of ever actually happening, but I could see the humanity at work of how they kind of took reasonably logical actions throughout sure. the course, you know, the government's and everyone's response, and, yeah. well, then we did this, and then we decided to do this. It's like, yeah, it kind of, it's plausible. Yeah, it's plausible it does feel that, that it's what a government would likely do should mm -hmm. something like this happen and they would start researching the kind of stuff that they did and start being ruthless because it's humanity survival's at stake, you know? Yeah. And it made a lot of sense, actually, um, the way that they kind of... I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Like, the, the timeline of events, as I was reading through it, I was impressed by its con the convincing nature of it. It's, yeah. it's like, if something like this fantasy white chlorination syndrome maso magical mm -hmm. particle came in if something like that could ever people. happen it felt like it was a very logically thought out set of events that in the real world would feel believable to happen in response to this mm. um so i really really liked it there's even some st stuff that they detail after uh after essentially the gestaltization of Near into yes, the Shadow Lord. and I found that stuff like super fascinating. So this is where they create the androids because they put all the Gestalts to sleep, right? Yeah. Um, and the androids and the replicants who do not have sentience yet yes. are tasked with like cleaning, ridding, up. like purifying yeah. Yeah. the atmosphere of Maso. And it's almost like Wally, right? The replicants yeah. are supposed to be little Wally robots that just go and clean up the broken world, and they do nothing but that, and yeah. they do what they're told, and and that's that. But after what is it like, maybe six or seven hundred? Seven hundred years, years later, all of a sudden they kind of stop wanting to do. They that. start <laughs> developing sentience. Yeah, 
Um, and there's actually another incident where a new red eye emerges. Um, yeah, because one of the replicants goes to the place where the original red eye died in Jerusalem yeah. and like offers up her child to, I think her child had died or something like that. Or maybe, I think it was something like that. But offers up her child to become the new red eye <laughs> in, a, in a weird kind of way. And somehow the powers that existed in that moment were still, were activated and Red Eye was able to kind of reassume power and they were met with this like huge catastrophe again. But something interesting happens, it's around like 3,000 or so, that they finally, you know, they get rid of Red Eye and they get rid of all of, like there is no more white chlorination syndrome anymore, yeah. right? Everything is completely gone. And as soon as um, there is no more detection of that type of maso, then the, the Gestalt's wake up like right away. So there yes. are no shades until like 3100 AD. Yeah. Or something like that. There are no shades until then, and that's when they wake up, and that's when the replicants start kind of having problems because yep. the shades wake up and they're like, and they're they kind of know what's going on. And most, a lot of them are, it's like 70% relapse, right? Yep. It's like a high percentage of them are relapsing, and for the others, it's just a matter of time. Yep. And they are kind of eager to repossess the bodies of the replicants. Yes. And it's like they'll like reach out for them and they'll try to attack them and they do have the power to repossess or to possess and yeah. take over a, a replicant. But the replicants are so resistant to it and they're they fighting fight it. Them. And they're just like, get away from me, this is my body. And that's where the this stuff all kind of starts. And that's, I think, where Devil and Popola start seeing things we start a, going down. We have a problem here. <laughs> we have a problem here. <laughs> this is not and, going according to plan. This was... Yeah. Um, this is and an also, unforeseen problem. Yeah. That's where the Shadow Lord also starts to see the same kind of problem. And that's where he kind of, he's doing his own thing now. He's like, my whole point is just to save Yona. And he starts to kind of not necessarily do what Devil on Popola's plan was yeah. either. Right? Because he's kind of got his own, his own agenda here. And so they all kind of agree. Devil of Popola, Shadow Lord, and Grimoire Noir all agree. Okay, well, let's... You reunite the books and wake up all the gestalts and re and he but he says in order to do that I need Yona awake first because once she wakes up we need her to cure so we need to replicate her first. I think that would be why uh, they didn't just take Grimoire Noir and Vice and just splice them together without Nier or anything. Yeah. They they um, didn't do that just on their own because they could have, but it was like no because then Yona's going to relapse and right is that right? That might be wrong. Say it again. Then Yona's going to relapse and die if the if the books reunite. Well, why, well, why she's going to die no matter what because she's already. You're relapsing. right. You're right. Because that it's kind because of that there was is kind no of the, cure. That was like the half truth. There is no cure. He was led to believe she could be stopped from relapsing. But it he was, starts to realize uh, once after he realizes years. that there is no saving her. Yes. That they lied to him. Yeah. That's when he decides to forcibly take the replicant body back and try to make it happen. Okay. But even because that was one of the interviews they asked, well, if the Shadow Lord hadn't been killed and you know Yona had stayed in the body would and he had forced himself back into his replicant would they have been able to, you know, and, and Yogotar was like, no, Yona's going to die no matter what. No matter what. Because the relapsing could not be stopped. So this is kind of the Shadow Lord just desperation to right. make it work, but it wouldn't have worked. Anyways. It wouldn't have worked. Yona so, is dead no matter what. So why didn't Devil and Popla take Grimoire Noir and Grimoire Vice and just put because them Because there are still some non-relapsed gestalts yes. out there. And forcing them back into their bodies means that they would be human again. 
and that's bad? No, it's good. Okay, it, but why didn't they do that? Oh, they well, they were trying to. They no, were, because Grimoire Vice was at... Uh, Popola sends us on some mission to go to the top of the... Lost Shrine. The tower. Yeah, the Lost Shrine, and there's Grimoire Vice is there. And yes. the, the idea was that we were supposed to go there and get Grimoire Vice. Yes. So they knew where it was. Yes. They could have just gotten it. No, and they were already in contact. They with Shadow also Lord. have to have the sealed verses. So there's a fail safe. Oh, that's it. That's the difference. Okay. There's, that's there's, what a, all there's makes a bit of sense. a fail safe just yeah. to make sure that this doesn't happen by accident or too early or like you know. That's so right. Vice, as he is, cannot connect with Noir and make it happen. You mm. have to collect the sealed verses and that's then right. bring them together. Okay. And they send him on this mission to do that. Um, but so I guess theoretically they could have done it themselves and in hindsight they, they should, should have. have <laughs> but they had determined um, not to that they were just going to kind of use Nier to do this. And I don't think they knew that there was, they didn't foresee well, the problem. Well, it's dangerous too. Clearly they didn't foresee the problem. But, um, you know, there's there's probably other little details that I don't even know have ever been explained. Like, right. But like, that's enough to my mind where it's yeah. like, okay, I kind of get it. Like, like they I, didn't know this was going to happen. When you Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. When you fight Devola and Popola in the Shadow Lord's castle the first time, mm -hmm. they have to, like, copy Vice's powers in order oh, to use right. them. That's and right. they're like, well, of course, his powers came from us in the first place, but they had to like copy them from him to start fighting you with magic. Mm -hmm. So before that, I would assume maybe it's like a dangerous mission to go fight these shades. He's got vice with him. He can go, he has a better right. chance of attaining the sealed verses than we do. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what the limits were to them being able to use magic or fight or whatever it is. But it is interesting that they have to copy Vice's powers to fight you. Sure, yeah, that's interesting. And they are only able to copy his powers because you've collected the powers in the first place. Right. You've collected the sealed verses. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a matter of we're the managers and it's too dangerous, we might die. Let's send Nier to do it. But there's also an element where they were trying to delay this a little bit because they're conflicted right. themselves. Yeah. They, they don't want to make this happen yet, right. but it's like the Shadow but, Lord's but getting the plan impatient. isn't working. Yes. I, I, they could have waited a thousand more years, and I don't think they'd have been in a better spot. Right. It, the the That's shades the were relapsing. Yeah. That's the conflict they're having, is that right. we kind of need to make this happen now, but we don't want to because we care about these individuals yes, in exactly. the replicant bodies, and we don't want to make them give up their bodies to, sure. to Gestalts. And, and at least in part, th that is because they themselves, as androids, also... Began. Not to the extent of the yeah. replicants, because they still couldn't override their programming, but they started to gain sentience themselves. Yes. And they started to feel and... Yes. Okay. So makes, it's a complicated situation, but yeah. Um, all right. So then that's the end of uh, the timeline. And, and the book kind of goes into the weapon stories, like I mentioned earlier. And then there's some, some notes from Emil that are kind of funny about just observations mm -hmm. about bosses and things that they fought along the way. They're kind of funny. The stories um, were great though. I really like the stories. Like there's one about yeah. Emil where it's after he's been blasted out and he lands in the sand and he's like tr trying to collect his new body, right? And he's like, yeah. oh, 
I'll just use my magic. And he makes a body out of sand and then he tries to move, but it all just falls. And he's like, ah, sand doesn't work. And <laughs> he tries to make one of rocks, but it's too heavy. And so he, he goes around and he tries to make one out of feathers, but he's like, he needs too many feathers because one, <laughs> all these feathers he gathered. And he's like, this would only make a finger for me. Like, this isn't good. And then it takes him like 30 days to realize that he still has magic and that he can fly. And so he's been rolling along, just ahead, <laughs> rolling along this whole time. Emil is just the best character. He's so funny. He's so innocent and kind-hearted and just a good guy. And the whole time, he's just like, you can just hear his voice because I, yeah, just for reading it, he keeps getting himself in these problem situations where he's like, ah, ah, no, 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 ah, ah, no, 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 wrong. That's not what I meant to do. And you can yeah. just like hear it. You can see it almost. Yeah. And then um, at the end of his story, he uh, tries to use his magic to create a body, and he ends up creating an explosion that blasts his head all the way back to where he first started in that <laughs> desert. And he's like, oh, man. And then it's over. That's just the whole story. That's funny. But a lot of those stories are, are fascinating. Um, well, they're really good. They're really good There's stories. some dark ones, too. I mean, there are some dark ones, too. Um, especially the ones involving Kaine. Yeah, that was uh, that was that was. I don't even want to talk about it. Just go fetch and read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, read it if you want to. Just but what know I it's, it's pretty. But what it's I found um, <clears throat> really strange about it, the story involves a, a woman who's kind of like going around preaching the idea of equality, and she arrives at the area and she's trying to like help these people to realize that Kaine isn't equal to them, and yeah. she's preaching this ideology about equality. But by and, the end, she's like. <laughs> But then she, she hates Kanye so much. It, I don't know. It didn't really work for me. Like it was weird. Yoko was just kind of well. A, he didn't write it. Oh, so you're right. You're right. It was he got um. There's the different novelists, different scen write scenario it. writers. Yeah. There's a couple of different people. So who he'd wrote seen those. some ideas, and those guys would kind of take it. Yeah, and take make it a whole story. But yeah. what I found so funny about it is, this person is not put off by the shade possession, the monster inside of her at all. It's the fact that, that she's intersex. Yeah, that she's intersex. Like, oh my gosh! It just freaks her out. <laughs> Anyways, what what what's happening? Yeah. It's it's very explicit, but it's very like, explicit. Still, it 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 it's so funny and um, not a good way to me. In, it's funny in a bad way to me that she yeah. cares more about the fact. <laughs> that it's, it's weird. Like masturbating and, than yeah. about the fact that she's a, she's possessed by a shade, and it just like freaks her out. She's disgusted by it, and like. Anyways, it's it's crazy, but the stories in general aren't so bad. They're pretty just good. Don't read that one. Uh, Emil no, and, and Haluas was really. I, I think people should read it uh, if it's, if you don't. Want well, to. unless I'm you unless that stuff in general bothers you. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad story. It just, no, no, it didn't. That little part of it, and and maybe there's something to be said about the fact that people can be hypocritical about little things like that. It's like they might preach or talk a big game. Well, that's what they say. You um, strain at a gnat but swallow a camel, yeah, right? It's like, so it's like you're so upset about a small thing, but then you're dealing, or <laughs> what is it? You uh, cast the large beam out instead of straining at the little yeah. Um, sliver. Yeah, people tend to be like that, where you're straining at one little thing. Yeah. It's like you're letting this huge other thing go, but it's a, like a way bigger deal. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that's not like true to life. It just it struck mm. me as being strange. And maybe it would have been better had like more time, you know, a larger word count, more time been put into sort of like setting yeah, up yeah. why she would react that pages. way. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't know. Because we don't know much about her. Anyways, so short stories are pretty good. Some of them are not actually translated. They're like summaries 
that people found on like a uh, Chinese forum yeah, from China, yeah, that were then translated. So that's like the ending E one. It's it's like yes. the full story is not translated as far yeah. as I know. Um, it's just a summary. So it, it's it's interesting stuff though. Yeah. Um, and to to pick out some of the differences between ending E in the game versus ending E as in, in this book or the episode Mermaid. Episode Mermaid is pretty faithful to what mm -hmm. happens in the game. It's pretty close. There's just a couple of differences, but it's more or less the same thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So then there's a, a bunch of um, interviews, and I just kind of, I kind of copied and pasted a few really interesting quotes, and then just to go through them, just to talk about a couple of things. Um, if you have any too, you know, feel free to bring them up. Okay. So this is a quote from Natori who was one of the writers yeah. of the short stories. Uh, that's right, when he was young, she just felt friendship towards uh, a fellow comrade, talking about Kainate's feelings towards Mir, um, and a person she could trust, but she realized the changes in her feelings when she woke up in the library. We made it uh, to emphasize that during the scene. Yeah, so that was, <clears throat> that was, um emphasize, you had brought that up. So this was and actually, was this is something that I hadn't, I had two feelings about this scene based on the Gestalt version and the Replicant mm -hmm. version. In the Gestalt version, the older man, I didn't read romantic undertones in the scene, despite the fact that they were probably intentional because mm -hmm. Replicant was the intended version, right? It, the younger version of the character is the intended version. But, and this, this, this is probably a good time to bring up that I might have given off the wrong impression in one of the earlier episodes where some people in Discord were feeling that I um, preferred the younger brother near character to the father one, generally, for the story. Mm. And that's not the case. I actually prefer the father mm. um, to the brother. But there are certain instances, certain scenes, where it's clear this was meant to it be meant a to younger be a person, so yeah. it comes off strange that an older person says it. Mm -hmm. Which, best example of that is, you and I are friends now. Yes, yes. Which is really weird for a 40-year-old dude to yeah, say yeah. to a 17-year-old girl. Mm. It's not as weird if it's a 15-year-old boy saying it. Right. But what I would you know, rather do is just alter the dialogue so that it sounds like sure. a, an older man would just say Just localize it in a different way, yeah. But overall, to me, I feel... And, and there's actually some stuff they get into in the interviews, too, that kind of like clarified my thoughts on this. The story for me works better with the older father character, a father-daughter relationship. The desperation, the willingness sure. to do anything yes, to yeah. save your daughter. Um, I think there's a stronger bond there than there is with a brother-sister. Not that there mm -hmm, isn't I a strong so. bond, a familial tie, right. a willingness to do anything to save, but it's not quite as strong, I would think, as a father-daughter. Yeah. And with that being said, there was actually some intended scenes that had to be altered or cut that were going to dive into Mir's yeah. um, resentment of Yona. Yes, exactly. For being burdened by he her. he has to take care of her yeah. all the time and she can't do anything for herself. Yeah. And, and Yoko Taro couldn't handle yeah. the heartbreak Which, of that. With all the stuff he put in the game, like, you kidding me, dude? But apparently it was just too, too sad much for to him. have the brother be upset at the sister. Yeah. So they're just never upset at each other. Yeah. Uh, but that would have played very differently as a father. Oh, He's yeah. He's like, oh, I gotta do all the work around here. And it's well, like, to your daughter? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I so mean, that scene just wouldn't have been able to 
exist in the Western version. I, I can see, that, that's kind of the major th difference that I see between a brother taking care of a sister versus yeah. a father taking care of a daughter. Now again, there are going to be instances where there's a person who didn't want to be a parent and so they sure. have resentment towards Some this resentment. little child they have to take care of. Right. I don't, but-, but That's just clearly not what's happening A here. father who loves his daughter, the, the intensity of the need to protect mm. is stronger than a brother to protect a sister. It just yes. is. Yeah. And I do feel like there would be, even if it's just from time to time, this feeling of being burdened by taking care of a little sister. I don't get to live my life. Right. I have to always take care of you. Mm. That you, you would feel bad about too. It's like, oh, I'm not supposed to feel like that. This is my, I love my sister and of course you do. But I feel like there's just a difference where the story of Nier and the Shadow Lord's willingness to wait thousands of years to go through all of the stuff he goes through to save Yona works better for me if it's a father-daughter than it does as a brother-sister. Okay, sure. It's not, like, it, it, it's not like this is bad, it's just that I think it works better here. Sure. So, that being, I guess, clarified, right, I read the scene with Kaine and Father Nier really differently mm -hmm. because she looks at him and I really only got the sense that she just had this deep shock or surprise that someone would be willing to save her after five years or even mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like a, like, like looking up to an uncle figure kind of sure, a thing like you, yeah. s you still cared. Mm. Where you know, this deep camaraderie between the two, right? Now, of course, later in the game, there's the part where she kicks him and slams him against the wall and he's like close to his face. And there's, yeah. the, there would obviously be the kiss. That would have been. That would still exist in ending different. C, right? Right. <laughs> where uh, Nier oh, kisses yeah. her as she's dying. Oh, right, yeah. That would feel very awkward to me for Father Nier. For Father Nier, yeah. Because <laughs> I just didn't see the relationship that mm -hmm. way. That's not the way I read it. But when I revisited the scene in Replicant, it was clear to me that romantic undertones were there. Because yeah. last time she saw him, he was a little boy <laughs> who was shorter than her. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's definitely still the deep appreciation, the shock that someone cares. But there's also definitely a spark that I felt yeah. where he's tall and handsome now and he cares mm -hmm. about me and there's a romantic spark in it. So anyways, it was interesting that she, she I, the reason I copied this was to say that when they wrote that scene, this is the moment where Kaine starts to have feelings for Nier and I picked up on that in Replicant and I didn't pick up on that in Gestalt. Okay. Even yeah. if it was intended. Sure. Anyways, just an interesting Makes note sense. I wanted to bring up. Um, but then it goes on to say, uh, Yoko Taro says, by the way, Kaine first, because this is a little bit of a, he has a different idea, I guess, of when she first realized it, because Natori says it was that scene, but Yoko Taro says that Kaine first realized that she loved Nier during the love scene in the Shadow Lord's castle, and everyone's oh, confused. Where, yeah, yeah. Everyone's the like, love scene. love scene in the Shadow Lord's castle? What are you talking about? Yeah, and, yeah. and then she says, when she kicked Nier in the stomach, and Aishima is like, that could have been called a love scene? <laughs> and she's like laughing. And then Yoko's like, it is a love scene, with an exclamation. She mm. realized that, ah, I actually love this person. When she was kicking him and beating him up, her backing off was the girl side coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, it was a good scene. I could clearly see how Kaine's brain works. 
And then he says it was the most romantic scene in the game. Yoko says that. So I mean, as far as romance goes, I suppose that <laughs> might actually be true because it's not that kind of game. But uh, and Natori follows that up by saying, "When I was writing the scenario, I almost dipped into Kaini and Nier's romance territory a few times, but I remember Yoko telling me that this isn't what I wanted to show. This is what you touched on earlier. Yeah. Um, and he asked me to change it. I have to focus on writing them as comrades. So it ended up being a rather simple love story. So." Taro didn't want to burden the story with too much complexity right. on these other sort of like sub-character arcs or, or, or feelings that they had for each other. Mm -hmm. he, he wanted, and this is something I kind of find commonly in anime and JRPGs that have sort of complex stories. Mm. The main characters sort of, when there's a big exposition dump or something, yeah. The characters are like, hey, I don't understand any of this. All I care about is this. And I think yes, the point that of that is to, even if the player or the viewer is confused, mm. we at least still understand that there's a very simple goal at the center of this, which is this character's trying to save his sister, and that's really what right. matters. And that's, yeah, focus And I on think that. that's what Tara was trying to give as direction is, like, look, there's a lot of complex stuff going on in here in this game. Mm. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of complexity to it. But let's just keep Nier's goal simple so that the right. player can follow it and not get lost in all these details. Mm. And so that's why they didn't want to try to explore a romance between Nier and Kaine or anything like that, right? Yeah. So, interesting point. Um, but as a result of that, the development uh, for ending C and D, it, it might come off as a little bit strange because it's like we're not trying to... <laughs> you know, explore these feelings or whatever. And this is where Yoko says, instead of it being a decision for Nier and Kaine, it was more like a choice for the player in Kaine. Exactly, because Nier would mm. not have done that. And you yes. brought that up last time. Like Nier's whole story is about his sister. He would not give that all up to save Kaine and then he disappears. Yes. And that's that. That's just yes. based on the whole game that we played, that would not happen. And, and I mean, definitely not father Nier. But <laughs> brother not. near, I doubt too. But I, I could see it more. Maybe. I could see it more than father near, but definitely not father near. Um, <clears throat> so he goes on to say, if you like Kaine after playing through the game twice, then sacrifice yourself to save her. If you don't, then you don't have to save her. I wasn't trying to force your hand into saving her by shoving romance down your throat. Um, the interviewer says, I see. However, near's my beloved line comes off even more abrupt now. I guess he says, my beloved to her, right? Um, maybe mm -hmm. that's different in Japanese than in English. You know, I don't recall that line, but it's possible. But Yoko goes on to say, that was more like a spur of the moment thing rather than an intended direction. So whether the player loves Kaine or not, base your decision on that. Hmm. Not on whether the character, not on the character loves Kaine or not. So that leads me to believe that endings C and D are not necessarily canon endings. Though that doesn't well, really matter. D goes into automata, or automata. Now it, it does. Yeah. <laughs> right? But at the time, Oh, it was right. Not, I see what you It mean. was not yes. written that way. It was not written that way. I see what and you so, mean. And so, yeah. Okay. It's, it's just interesting. So it's just me. a thing for the player, should they have felt that right. connection. But, that they but can have that this, kind is, of this is also a pattern for Taro, where he takes what would seem like a non-canonical ending and makes that the canonical ending yes. later. <laughs> he quite often does that. 
So I think it gives him more freedom to continue in as screwed up a world as possible for his next game in that series if he just takes the screwed up ending. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the, interviewer, the interviewer goes on to say ending D isn't the true end just because it comes last, but the player could freely choose their own true end. And Yoko says, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So that was yeah. kind of the intended direction of ending C and D. It was more of the player projecting what they feel about Kaine, not so much the character himself, and you kind of create your own ending with that, with those two, right? Yeah. But now it's been complicated a bit more with ending E, so. Uh, yeah, because yeah. everyone's going to say that that would That's likely the canonical be the ending canonical now. ending, yeah. Um, let me skip ahead a little bit. Uh... Well, the interviewer then says, hearing you say that, I feel pain at having made my choice on the basis of Nier. Uh, now I'm told to make that choice based on what I really feel for Kaine. In a certain matter of speaking, the hurdle the player had to cross was quite high. Um, Natori felt like ending D was very natural. Nier's love for his comrades was really strong. This is something someone wrote in a comment um, in refutation to what I was saying, where I didn't believe Nier would do it. Um, Natori kind of had this a similar interpretation to this commenter. Uh, Nier's love for his comrades was really strong, and even if that were Emil, he'd still save him. To him, only Yona is special, and everyone else sort of shares the first place in his heart. So it's like, now that I know Yona is saved, yeah. I also will give myself up for my comrades. I care about you equally, mm -hmm. right? So there is, you know, something to that, and that's, uh, I think, a, a valid interpretation that the character would do this even Natori felt that way, right? Possibly, yeah. Um, and then the interviewer says, yeah, he probably thought that he'd be happy simply with people important to him, including Yona, living on. So just the thought, the, the knowledge that they'll live on, right? And then uh, Aishima says, to me, ending C was Father Nier's choice, and ending D was Brother Nier's choice. Hmm. Um, right, because... But still, kind of I, he said, I, yeah. and he can say that, that's fine, but... Um. Yeah, anyways, it's just, <laughs> it's a lot of interesting interpretations, and, and the reason I wanted to point all this out is because even the people writing the story have different feelings about those endings and mm -hmm. what Nier would do or wouldn't do, or whether this is for the player or whether this is for yeah. the character. They, Yoko Taro may feel this way, that was the way I felt, Right. but other people feel differently, and even these other scenario writers and short story writers also... Yeah. Had those feelings. And you know, that's the genius of having multiple endings. Yeah. You can have the ending for the player, the ending for the character, the ending for your westernized different character, the ending for uh, just whatever you, you can kind of choose it however you want. Yeah. Until a game like Automata comes out and then everyone's like, nope, D's the only canonical ending. And then, <laughs> yeah, it's just what it is. Exactly. But he's pretty smart to do that, I think. Um, Although I do have to bring up because you brought up last episode about um, how did Tyrion bring Kaine oh, back yeah, in like ending How D? does the rule work? Yeah, how does the rule work? Where was it explained? How does this make sense? How does he Tyrion know about it? There is sort of a maybe way Tyrion know about it just because he's Yura. So just Yura. to clarify, we're he talking was, about um, erasing Nier. How does erasing Nier from existence bring Kaine back to being a normal human again? What yeah, is the, yeah. Why does that rule exist? How does it work? Was it's my like question. A, an exchange kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that question is asked here in the interview. <laughs> so here it is. Um, this says, Nier and Tyrion combined their efforts to save Kaine, who went 
berserk in ending C and D, but how exactly is Kaine saved in ending D? Yoko says, by everyone's love and spirit. <laughs> the so, Dragon Ball Z situation. Yes, just, just once again. Just give your spirit to the big spirit ball. So you're right. It's not explained. Yoko doesn't offer any explanation. It's yeah. just this is how it is. He yeah. just wanted an alternate sway of balance from ending C to ending D and for the player to experience a different you know, scenario. And there is no um, mechanism for which that is... Um, made possible, I guess, yeah. within the game. Yeah. It just is. Um, so this is something I wanted to bring up again because there's a, a couple of disparaging comments on the last video talking about it. It's not that hard to understand, right? <laughs> like, do better research or whatever. Um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to read fun. this. Okay. I wanted to read this in, uh, as a, not a rebuttal, but just in response to that. Um, so the interviewer is like, when I read the settings in this book, I, real, I realized that many of them were not revealed in the actual game. He's talking about like the short stories and oh, other yeah. supplemental material in the near Grimoire, mm -hmm. the Grimoire near. The interviewer's like, a lot of this stuff was not explained in the game. And Yoko says, that's true. We barely explained Project Gestalt. Yeah. And the interviewer says, was that intentionally done? And Yoko says, we didn't explain everything because that's just how reality is. I wanted to reflect certain elements of reality in this game. So I didn't put too much focus on explaining everything. I also wanted to make the basic story simple and easy to understand, so I deleted most information that weren't vital to emotional impact. The interviewer says, I became really confused as I was listening to all that. And Yoko says, that's right, we became confused when we were thinking of all that. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't think these, this information was necessary to the enjoyment of the game. These settings don't really matter. So I think a lot of people who are watching are possibly longtime veterans of Nier, in the same oh, way sure. that I'm a longtime veteran of Middle Earth stuff. Yes. And I've dedicated a substantial number of hours of my life to learning the lore <laughs> of Middle Earth. For many years, decades. And even. these people similarly yeah. have spent a lot of time delving into Nier. Yeah. This was my, in reality, first playthrough of the game. So I'm not mm. going to read supplemental material before I play the game for the first time. Right, and right? that's true. A lot of what we are doing on the podcast is we're, we're analyzing the story, right? Yeah. And so as we go through the story, we're giving our critiques and analysis and our um, attempt at understanding the artist and the, or the yes. author. And that's what we're doing here. And so as we play this game, we are analyzing the story for what it is, not... For as it as, for what it is as it's presented, yes. right? Because certain info is presented little by little, right? We don't we didn't read Grim, Grimoire near first and yes. then start playing the game. We didn't play the game first and then start replaying it again. We're analyzing the story, and sometimes it's it's just as effective. Well, it's effective in a different way to analyze a story the first time you see it as a new yes. person, yes. as like the 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 way that information's presented. Oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. What what are they going to do with these characters? As opposed to analyzing it, which is equally valuable. They're both valuable. Yes. Analyzing it once you know everything, and then 
as a retrospective, kind of yes. like what we often will do on the channel. Yes. Um, but there is also tremendous value in, in analyzing something as a first-time viewer, first-time experience of yes. the thing itself, because the first-time experience is what uh, colors the rest of your experiences with the thing going forward. And it's really important to nail that the first time, right? Yeah. As opposed to on subsequent playthroughs, oh, okay, this makes more sense now. And this is actually just kind of a larger goal that I, I wanted for the podcast, mm -hmm. where as often as possible, I would like for one of us to have played the thing before and one of us to have not yeah. played the thing before. And that could switch back and forth. And that's fun. Um, that, that makes for interesting conversation. Because you get the perspective of one person who is very familiar with the thing mm -hmm. and one person who is not. And I think both of those perspectives are valid. It ha just so happened that on this particular game, neither of us had played it before. But, but this will happen because one of the reasons we chose or we put this in the poll for you guys to choose on Patreon and Subscribestar, <laughs> um, the, this particular game is because... It, the uh, remaster was coming out. Yes, and, uh, often, it was a relevant topic. Yeah, it's, it was relevant, it was new, because mm -hmm. we don't always just want to be talking about um, old Super games. old stuff. Now, I understand Nier came out 10 years ago, but we also want to occasionally play newer games on this channel, and this will be the result of a newer game. Yeah. We've never played it before, we're right. jumping into it, we were treating this as that, because Nier Replicant version 1.22 had just come out, and that's kind of like, that will happen you know, occasionally as well. So, anyways, I wanted to bring that up because all of this supplemental stuff, according to him, is not the important thing anyways, but, like, it, it is confusing. It's not easy to, yeah. like, understand the story and of here. There's didn't a lot make it going easy. on. And, <laughs> but, you know... But now that we've read all this, it's coming together, right? Sure. Like, you're Which is it how together. it works. You play the game, you beat the game multiple times for multiple yes. endings, and then you read the supplementary material so everything makes sense, and then you're good. You don't expect us to know everything on podcast one of a game we never played before. Yeah, and in addition to that, the, but, the but opinion... But please, please do enlighten and inform us in yes. the comments. We yes. have no problem with that, you know. That's we, actually great. We, we like to read that stuff. Yeah. And correct I'm, us I'm where speaking, we're wrong. I'm speaking specifically to the disparaging Yes, corrections. just don't be a jerk. <laughs> Not to the people who are, because there were far, 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 far more people oh, offering perspective or very corrections nice. yeah. who are saying, hey, it's actually like this. You know, like, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Or I disagree with you here, yeah. or it's actually this. That's fine. Yeah, love, like love to read those. And we have yeah. copied many of those comments to respond to here yeah. at the end of this. So. But like a book club, if you're a jerk, you might get kicked <laughs> out of the club. <laughs> it's like, hey, man, we're just reading the book. <laughs> like... But you know, but also our but opinions. Please correct us. Our that opinions. Being said, please correct our us. opinions are not concrete. They're mm -hmm. they're fluid. They're going to change based yes. on new information. Absolutely. I am open to having my mind change on things. And that's going to happen from time to time. Sometimes yep. I'll get the new perspective and it won't change my mind. And I'll give you the reason why. But that's the back and forth book clubish nature <laughs> of this podcast, right? It's so. Anyways, I just wanted to clarify. That's the point of what okay. we're doing. Okay. Okay. And, and the bit, just to, to reemphasize, it is we are analyzing the story, yes. most specifically. We analyze other things as well, but in analyzing the story, we'll take it piece, piece by, by piece, piece, right? We're not just throwing it all out there. This is many podcasts. We've got a lot of time. Yes. Many hours that we've talked about this game. A lot of time to go through all the finer details and to iron everything out. Right. Okay. Actually, actually that's the end of my notes. Okay. Do you nice. have any more? I do, because there's the one thing that I want to talk about that I didn't talk about last time. And yeah. just as a general, you probably hear from me occasionally um, anecdotes based on 
archetypes or old stories or in particular Bible stories or ancient kind of history kind of story stuff. That's just an area that I have a lot of interest in. And certain things will jump out at me um, from that type of a lens, from a kind of, I guess, an anthropological lens. Yeah. Like understanding. Well, Landon the studied anthropology too, exactly. right? In college. And I took some classes on that in, in school as well. And that is just an area of interest that, that I have. Understanding mm. cultures and how storytelling specifically, how important it is to the history of people and language and all of this good stuff. So, that being said, um, I had some notes uh, specifically about Emil being gay, and I just kind of wanted to throw this out here because I feel like Yoko Taro, I feel like a lot of this stuff is done intentionally. As you mentioned, there's characters named like Jonah, or there's the Wall of Jericho. They call it the Wall yeah, of Jericho. Yeah, it's a biblical reference. Yeah, and there's a lot of biblical references here, despite maybe they, are, they don't come full circle in being actual, like, Jonah is not... Jonah whale, Jonah, as yeah. far as we can tell, <laughs> unless there's something else going on there. Um, but there's a lot, Yoko does put these references in, and so I do specifically, well, you know, feel like I can draw some other references out. There's, a, I mean, like we, like we mentioned, a lot of the, um, like, homages to other games. Oh, yes, right. like Resident Evil, Zelda. They, in some yeah. of these interviews, they actually talked about how it was too close to Resident Evil. Oh, yeah. And they were concerned that it would well, be seen as plagiarism. I didn't and know they this. To, they had to, like, alter it a little well, bit. Well, a few people that worked on a Resident Evil game then moved over to work on Nier oh, really? afterwards. Okay. It was, it, some of it was similar people from the same team that had worked on that before. Right. And so I feel like that might have been where some of the problem is. They're like, oh, I know how to do this. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, that's exactly the same. Can you change it? Yeah. <laughs> Please change it. But yeah, he often is paying homage, and that's part of what creates an archetype, is, is people will pay homage or reference something previously, and then the next generation references that, and the next one references it again, and then before you know it, you've created an evolutionary lineage that the story can be traced back through that incorporates all these different elements through many generations, and before you know it, the story is focused down to like a, a, a basic moral thematic kind of tenet and and it's it encompasses their culture and it explains like sometimes it's cosmological or it's mythological or whatever yeah so in the case of Emil I I have a connection here um, in these notes here the uh, the scientist as written by not Yoko himself I guess whoever wrote those notes there um, comments that the people who suffer from white chlorination syndrome turn into basically a statue he says are he or she that I can't tell this is Japanese that the um, people who um, turn to salt, they, it looks like they're just white, like a statue, something like that. Yeah. You remember reading that? Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, but upon closer examination, it is essentially salt. And this is where we first learned that, that that's exactly what's going on here. Um, some people might know kind of where I'm going here, uh, but I'll just read what I wrote down here. Um, Emil being gay and having a problem with the whole uh, pillar of salt thingy Having a problem. Okay, I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote this. Maybe I shouldn't read it. Okay, it's very Sodom and Gomorrah-esque. It embodies the entire story. Looking back upon the sins, and I, when I, I'm not making judgments here. I'm just saying this is the archetypal story. This is the myth. This is the Bible story. We're, we're, we're just presenting it as is we because this is not, where our modern stories come from. We are in favor of gay rights. <laughs> just be cool. Okay. Just be cool, man. Okay. Um, so it, Emil's situation embodies that whole story in, in a very interesting way. So looking back upon the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're familiar with the story, uh, which in part represents homosexuality, is where the word sodomy comes from, um, caused Lot's wife to turn into a pillar of salt. 
right? That's a biblical story. Uh, Lot's daughters were struck with blindness, right? They actually, I don't know, I think they blinded themselves so that they could no longer sin, at least not in that way. Uh, because the sin was a sin of longing, right? That she, Lot looked back and longed upon the, the past and turned into a pillar of salt. And so the daughters, to prevent any type of issue with that, they made themselves blind so that they could not look back and turn into a pillar of salt. Already you're going to see some connections here with Emil. But um, Lot's daughters could not look upon evil. They, they, they made it so that they, uh, it was impossible for them to look upon evil. They will be spared for this reason. You could look at Emil like this. He was punished for his destructive gaze, right? Uh, to hide his longing for male companionship, he made himself blind as the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were punishable by a pillar of salt or a statue, however that goes. Imagine a pillar of salt being somewhat like a stone. And I think that analogy works here as well. It goes deeper than just the story though. The sexual sin, sin that caused Lot's wife to turn to salt was her heart as Lot's daughters also, if you're familiar with the story after the whole situation, Lot's daughters, are, they, they aren't exactly chaste. <laughs> they kind of do some what you would consider to be sexual, there's sexual some, sin um, or deviant behavior. There's some uh, incest going on. That's the on. word, incest. I hope that doesn't get us in taken the, off In the biblical <laughs> stories. <laughs> yes. So Lot's daughters kind of, you know, anyways, we don't need to go into the whole story, but you can look it up. Um, it's, they, they basically do what any society, every society ever, if you understand any, you know, the history of any uh, civilization. Uh, this is one of the things with anthropology. All civilizations consider incest to be bad. Now, ancient Egypt had some funny things going on with the bloodline to keep it pure and whatever. I don't know, and often it was like cousins, not always brother and sister. Sometimes it was brother and sister. So, but generally speaking, anthropology is accepted that basically every civilization uh, thinks incest is bad. So this is clearly a bad thing that they've done, but they are blind. And being blind symbolizes a type of innocence, which Emil also embodies. Um, being blind, makes it so that they cannot commit the sin of looking back, of looking upon sin, I guess, of, of like longing for sin. Mm. And so in God's eyes, they did the act, but their hearts were still pure, right? Because they did not look upon sin. It, a lot of this is just very in, in symbolic, a very, um, right? Very yeah, symbolic. Like a very mythological symbolism type of exactly yeah. not in a not in a literal sense not in a literal <laughs> sense but this all we're all we're dealing with symbolism here um, so let's continue this um, so Lot's daughters do some sinful stuff and get their father drunk and sleep with him in order to continue the bloodline as the cities they dwelt in were now ruined uh, but the girls being blind were not subject to harsh penalty for their sin because it was it wasn't a sin of heart but of practicality they didn't yearn for it they were in the eyes of God I should just put everything's in quotes. Come on. <laughs> Innocent of sin. I don't want to do this the whole time. Okay. Then um, I have another note here at the bottom. So the blindfold on Emil clearly does not only represent his godlike ability to turn people into stone or salt. As Kaine tells him not to be ashamed of himself, it represents his heart as well. Um, I remember at the end, the first time we meet him, um, Emil is, is feeling bad and we don't necessarily know what's going on with him. Kaine can sense something, I don't know, but clearly Kaine walks past him and says something like, hey, like you're, you're it, it's okay, like it's okay to, to, to be you, right? Yeah. To be how you are, right? And I feel like that has dual meanings, not just, just like how Kaine has the dual symbolism of being half shade, but half human, but then also being intersex, meaning half, 
half and half at the same time there as well, that the dual meaning can, is implicit with Emil as well. That on the one side, his male gaze is destructive because it turns people to pillars of salt or statues. On the other hand, it also um, represents his, his longing for male companionship, sure. right? So then at the end here, uh, from the Okoverse, oh yeah, this is where I put it. My first impression is that of a white statue. This is the, the uh, scientist talking about it, similar to what I've been shown. In other words, uh, there is actually composed of salt. So the salt was to look like a statue. Anyways, I, I feel like Emile's character actually embodies the entire story of an archetypal story. This is also in the Quran. This isn't just in the Bible, although it's a little bit different in the Quran. Um, but the Yokotaro implements a lot of this archetypal storytelling, and I don't even know if it's intentional. I don't even I don't think archetypal story has to be storytelling has to be intentional. Yeah. I feel like that's that's part of what makes archetypes archetypes. They're they're ever present in in culture and in the the mind of of the people. And when you tell stories, it resonates with the people uh, for reasons that they don't even know necessarily. Sure. But when you write and tell a story, you are drawing upon these archetypes without even necessarily being conscious of it. So I don't know if this was conscious or not, but it just so happens that there's a pretty uh, interesting connection, I think, between the ancient story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Emile's character. And I just pass that on to you guys. And you can hate me for seeing okay. that the connection exists. <laughs> but I feel like I laid out a pretty good case. And it's just, it's just an archetype that people understand. And it's, you know, it's, it's present in lots of media, not just this game. But yeah. I did notice this particular thing here. So um, very interesting connection uh, mm. and, and interpretation there. And... Um, I, I want to say this because it's also going to apply to when we start getting in the comments here in a minute. Oh, great. Um, uh, regardless of what you felt Kaysen just said, <laughs> let's clarify one more time <laughs> what he definitely did not say. <laughs> and that is that well, Yoko Taro was somehow trying to put a biblical message about homosexuality, whether it's a sin or not, into his game. He was not casting moral That's judgment. That's not what he said. No. Okay. So just don't go there. Okay. <laughs> and, and some people will be upset at me even drawing a connection. That's fine. I, I don't really care because that's the funny thing about archetypes, man. It's They're just, they're present in the culture, whether yes. you want them to it's be a, or not. This is about archetypes. There. It's about archetypes. Yeah. It's about It's about storytelling. Yes. And that that is like, so the the centrality of storytelling is, is archetypal. Like Going basis. back throughout our history. Yeah these types of archetypes seem mm. to continually resonate with cultures yeah. across time, is the point. Okay, all right. I like what you said, I think it's interesting. Sweet. Let's also, the Shadow Lord was the savior, but then he became a fallen angel that basically resembles <laughs> the devil. There you go. Okay, we're done. All right, so I wanna to respond to some <laughs> comments and then we'll get into our final feelings on the game wrapping up. Okay. This one comes from Robert Roberto Zek. Roberto Zek. S Z E K Zek. Oh shit, might be Shek actually. Shek. Mm. Roberto Please Shek. tell us how to pronounce it. Roberto you. Shek. That sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> Long time listener from the early Dark Pixel podcast days. Oh, sick. Been around for a while. Right. Uh, first time caller and patron. <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. I like, <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, thank you for leaving a comment. Um, and thank you for being a patron. You're a beast. Mm. 
I had to leave a comment after finishing this part of the near analysis. I just wanted to say I've thoroughly uh, been enjoying it uh, the whole time. Both of you are doing a bang-up job. Very insightful and productive discussions, especially about Facade's Rule Zero and how differently you can interpret the view of death and come to accept it. One thing I'd like to point out about, into this again? about Kane's portrait oh, good. of her grandmother, and because this, this is you had talked about how shades might look like they kind of were colored by yes. hands or something. I, I think I know. Yeah, and there was somebody yeah. even on Twitter maybe that if you I can that see out. the portrait. Did you see that? Yeah, okay. I did, okay. and um, it's not what I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can see the portrait Fair of enough. her grandmother. Uh, you can actually see it inside the shed in the entrance of the airy where you first meet Kaine and where uh, she's implied to live. The portrait seems to have been drawn with color crayons, so to Kaysen's yeah. point about the shades possibly being similar to a kid's uh, drawing with charcoal, while there may be compelling theory, it may be something uh, that I wouldn't say is related to Kaine's drawing in particular. Sure. Which I think, uh, that's kind of what I took from you when we were having the discussion in the first place. Not, not that you were like declaring, I think yeah. she drew a shade. I just but kind of imagined it that way. You kind of just this more like abstract yeah. connection between how shades look like yeah. they were drawn by a kid. That's what I yeah. thought you were saying. Meaning that shades are a very rough representation of the human's yeah. actual spirit and not like a super like definite one, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he goes on to say, overall, I really like this game despite some of the execution. And while I think Automata refines some of the concepts seen here and implements them in a more cohesive way from a technical perspective, multiple playthroughs and routes, combat, sacrificing your own save, I feel I had a stronger attachment to Replicant Gestalt's characters and the emotional highs felt higher to me in Replicant compared to Automata. Needless to say, I'm quite happy you hit the weekly goal, and it's because of you being a patron. Thank you. That we hit the weekly goal. Thank you so much. We appreciate you, and thank you for that comment. Um, we really, uh, we really appreciate your thoughts. This comes from Greg Troyan, also longtime um, supporter of the channel. He says, "I'm about an hour in, and I'm a sucker for good melodrama. Shakespeare was basically the king of it. Mm, this of is course. a very fair point, <laughs> and something I forgot to say last time." Melodrama is often used as like a dismissive criticism, right? And that's not, but it need not be the really case, yeah. what it is. It's like, you know, oh, that feels melodramatic, as in, oh, it's over the top. It's too much. It's as if, as if the word is critical inherently, right. and it's not. Melodrama can be very good, and that's something yeah. I failed to say last time. Uh, you guys tend to be pretty consistent in derision and critique of melodrama not being to your tastes, which is true. Typically, I don't, but Shakespeare yeah. is very good, right? Yes. Like there's, <coughs> there's that being said, I may have a little more of affinity for it than you do. Probably. Given that I watch Korean dramas. <laughs> Korean dramas, but also, um, I think just the stage in general mm -hmm. is yeah. like a medium where it's just more inherently acceptable. Yeah, I like, think so, yeah. Like, because because of how it works. And, and this is actually something I was gonna get into about Final Fantasy at some point that I forgot to say. Mm. Final Fantasy in the old days, on the Super Nintendo, the NES, before, well, even during the PlayStation to some extent, when you had your fixed cameras, yeah. was theatrical in yeah. its presentation mm -hmm. because you have a little tiny person on a little screen, on a little stage, they kind of trying have to, to over emote, exactly, right? Yeah in a way to where we understand what the character feels. Yes. And so it has to be It's as big. if we're on the back row of yeah. a big stage from the 1600s, yeah. Exactly, and it's also important to note that 
um, some of the developers in particular, uh, Takashi Tokita, mm -hmm. who was the kind of like the director on Final Fantasy IV. I mean, technically Sakaguchi was, but mm. we'll call him an assistant director. And he directed the remake, the, the 3D remake. Oh, right? cool. So he was very involved mm. in that, right? He was, he, he was a theater major. Mm. So a lot of like what went into the DNA of how Final Fantasy evolved and how it presented was very theatrical in nature. Yeah. Um, and so there was kind of a melodrama in those mm -hmm. games. Um, and, and this is, as a filmmaker and someone who studied a lot of cinema, like when you have a camera that you can move right into somebody's face and you can see straight into their mm -hmm. eyes, it's where like more of the you subtle, more subtle yeah. the more subtle performances are appreciated yeah. more. So there, when something is theatrical versus being cinematic, I have a bit of maybe a different innate expectation mm. of how I prefer the performances to be. Okay. Yeah. So Shakespeare was written for the stage. Mm. When I'm sitting three, three, um, what do you call it? Not, what do they call it? The rose. Oh, balcony. Balcony. I'm on yeah. the third balcony at the yeah. way back, <laughs> right? I'm not going to see the villain. You're not going to hear give whispers. A look give a look and nah, just yeah. understand the malicious intent. Mm -hmm. I have to see the maniacal laughter yes. to understand. And it the has intent. to be quite loud to reach <laughs> all the way yes. to the back. Yeah. Right? So melodrama, I think, really works mm -hmm. on stage. So yeah. I, I like going to see plays. Uh, uh, Christine is, uh, you know, she studies theater. And so I'll go to plays often with her. And I, I oh, really cool. appreciate that form, that medium, yeah. right, for what it is, and it's inherently different, and that you have a different expectation, there's more abstract, sort of like, it's more abstract in nature, you have to mm -hmm. kind of believe the little foam thing is a tree in the background, right, right. right? yeah, and, and so there's a, a lot of more creativity, of the viewer. a lot of creativity into like, giving the idea, and, and that's how JRPGs felt, mm -hmm. back Pixel on the, art? Yeah. yeah, it oh, was, yeah. it was, it's like this doesn't really look like a tree, but it's a tree. It's a <laughs> lot of abstractions. Yes. Yeah. That were used to get across the concept of traveling the world, exactly. or the concept of fighting monsters in the field, or the concept mm. of this. But it's not. It's not like very literal, because it's theatrical, and that's yeah. just based on the technology of the time. But as like 3D games in HD, yeah. though. That melodrama, the melodrama becomes a little less appreciated. Yeah, when you can move that camera right into their face, <coughs> I don't right. need them to scream exactly on the nose what they're thinking and feeling mm -hmm. at me. I can <laughs> see it in their expression, which is yeah. why, for instance, I love the scene where Kaine just looks at Mir. It's very I, subtle. I can just feel what she's feeling. Yeah, like she doesn't yeah. have to say anything at all. And I, I would not be able to see that if uh, this were a pixel art game on the Super Nintendo and Kaine mm. just gets up and just like turns you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the how, same. How would you do that? I don't even know. So that's kind yeah. of my personal gauge on my acceptance or not of melodramatic performances in writing, right? Just a personal taste. Um, but he goes on to say here, in real life, there are more melodramatic people and more stoic people, and I think there's ultimately a balance to be found. FF8, for example, was so silly and melodramatic, I couldn't take 90% of it seriously. Near, on the other hand, the melodrama basically completely worked for me. On a spectrum, 
I seem to have a higher tolerance for it done well, and I think near showing the untold tragedies of conflict works well for the Iraq War parallel. Um, too long didn't read. It worked for me, but I appreciate melodramatic tendencies more than you guys. So, good comment. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because that is something I should clarify. Like, melodrama is not inherently bad, and there are places where I appreciate it a lot too. Mm. Uh, I think, especially for the stage, I think it's great. Anything you want to add to that? No, or? no, we're good. Kay. I think you did a good job. This comes from Angst with a Z. Angst. Nice. Love the discussion and agree with almost all your points. A few things I'd like to add. Number one, Kali, as Kaine's biological grandmother, is the narrator in that section reliable? If they aren't, then there's a good chance that Kali and Kaine aren't blood relatives. Why would Kaine not know uh, about even having a grandmother? Uh, while we know nothing about Kaine's parents, Kali at least doesn't strike me as someone who permanently cut contact to her child, Kaine's parent, over anything. Whatever may happen to them, isn't it just li as likely that Kali decided to take in the orphaned Kaine and just told her that they're related to make her feel less alone? Um, I think it's valid. I think that we now that we see the connection you know, from the um, the audio CD drama, that it was her real grandma. Probably more likely that they're yeah. biologically related, right? Yeah, based on yeah, for more near. Um, number two, not continuing the game as a valid, not continuing the game as a valid choice, which is something you brought up last night. That entire topic is very reminiscent of the 2012 military shooter Spec Ops The Line, which I really want to play. Mm. I've heard such good things about that game's story. Uh, he goes on to say, including an action forced on the player to be able to continue, which only turns out to be terrible with information learned after the fact, and presenting as a very typical game of its genre in the beginning. And then it turns out not to be, right? And the only way to not be the villain is to stop playing fits perfectly as well. Finally, the criticism of being too on the nose and shouting, how could you, uh, too much applies to it, too. Don't so remember that. He's drawing some parallels can. to Spec Ops The Line yeah. and Near and kind of the way they present some of the stuff. Thank you for reminding me i got to play it again. <coughs> uh, chicken and the Egg is his number three. Even if we could draw a line between chicken and pre-chicken and ask whether the chicken egg came before the chicken, it's a question of definition. Is a chicken egg an egg laid by a chicken, <laughs> or is an egg uh, from which a chicken will hatch? If the former, then the chicken was first. If the latter, the, chick, uh, the chicken egg was first. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> you, you got me. <laughs> uh, number four, on ending D, I agree that the option comes out of nowhere. I feel like getting Vice uh, or Noir involved could have helped uh, it seem believable. Oh, if they had some process. Yeah, some power or yeah. combination or whatever. It wouldn't have been too hard for them to do um, that. After all, they were uh, to play a role in joining replicants with gestalts and recreating humans. No clue why they didn't at least grab Noir's corpse and use it somehow for that purpose. That could have been interesting. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thought. Uh, Route E, small note, the androids don't just use the faces of 2B and 9S, but also their voice actors. I, we did oh, fail to yes. bring that up. The, they brought the voice actors back, although they sound a bit different. Yeah. But technically it is the same. Same, same, actors. same actors in English yeah. and in Japanese as in to Japanese. the automata voice actors. Mm. So, yeah. But they're putting on kind of a younger voice. Right. Yeah. Uh, number six, ending E in Drakengard 3. The connection goes beyond just the flower and the eye. The final Drakengard 3 ending does feature a giant white flower coming out of the ground and a female character at its center. I didn't know this because I haven't played Drakengard 3, so thank you for mm. bringing this up. 
which then in, uh, turns into almost a copy of Drakengard 1's ending, uh, ending E battle. Considering how that one connects to Mir, I can't believe that the imagery is coincidental. Well, Fair point. Sure. I have not played Dragon Guard 3, so the good correction there. See, that's the other thing. If we were going to go into this being fully informed and experts, <laughs> we'd have had to have played like five game. games. <laughs> and I'm sorry, we're, we play one Can't game on this podcast per, per time, per, yeah. per series. Too much. Number seven, there's another connection to Dragon Guard 3. In 1.22, uh, one of the loading screen diaries uh, mentions... I did notice they changed some of these. Yeah, mentions a merchant called Accord which has to be the same as the character from Dragon Guard 3, especially seeing as Accord is also mentioned as a merchant in Automaton. Mm. I believe this wasn't in the original Mir release. Well, so you know what? Since, since we're talking about Dragon Guard ending, th ending E for Dragon Guard 1, I did have one note here to bring up. Okay. You may have noticed that it kind of, it looks a little bit weird. It looks like um, it was shot like a 1950s film. Yes. Like specifically like a Godzilla or... Yes. Um, what's the word... I wrote this down. What do they call them? Uh, what's the word for monster? I see. In I can't. Oh, I can't think. Guy. Right guy. Now. What is that word? Well, yeah, I'm thinking kai kaiju. Kai, kaiju. Kaiju. Yeah, like a kaiju film. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's it. Fifth ending of Dragon Guard film, like a kaiju film. Um, it's. It looks like it was shot on a postcard of Tokyo with very poorly <laughs> comped yeah. in graphics on top, yeah. especially when the, dra the dragon falls and the, the jets are going. It looks poorly shot, but it's reminiscent of uh, the 1950s yeah. uh, Godzilla movies and stuff. So very that's how they used to do those. His final note here, I'd like to recommend Clemp's video essays on Dragon Guard and Nier games if you can deal with his eccentricity. <coughs> I did watch yeah. a couple of them. Yeah, um, he, he's, a, he's a funny guy, but I did watch a couple of them as well, yeah. at least to get caught up with Dragon Guard. I watched yeah. uh, his, because very few people actually have comprehensive analyses on, on, on Dragon, Dragon Guard yeah. specifically, yeah. and so he, he's one though. So, yeah. so, so I, I definitely did uh, catch up on, it, particularly, like you said, Dragon Guard lore, and even his Nier video I've seen. So. Uh, he goes into a lot of detail, not just summarizing the events of the game, but also concerning the supplemental material, mm. uh, which a lot of people don't know exists, and how it might connect. Cool. So, uh, good recommendation, yeah. If anybody uh, wants more um, on Dragon Guard near, like, lore, background, that sort of thing, and how they connect, Clemp's video series is very good. All right, the next uh, commenter here is ICE. I-C-E. Ca all capitals. I noticed that there's a few new loading screens mentioning Accord. So I, I wrote this oh, in connection yeah. to that one, right? From Drakengard 3, being a supplier of donor bodies for the experiment Emil and his sister took part in, as well as weaponry. The singularity moniker put on Kaine was also used in Drakengard 3. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing Oh, that's when I said singularity yeah. for um, sentience, right? Yeah. Uh, Zero, the flower-eyed girl. So this would make it the second time it has occurred. Hmm. All in all, I love these discussions and can't wait to see the conclusion. Much love. Sick. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, there's more connections to Dragon Guard 3 than we realized, and uh, ending E could connect it in hmm. a way that I did not foresee. Dragon Guard 4 confirmed. <laughs> or Dragon Guard 1.22 confirmed. <laughs> uh, this one comes from Slave. This one in particular is one I, I really want to um, focus on and respond to because of the. Well, he starts off by saying, hard disagree with the take on B. Oh, the playthrough of B. Yeah. Okay. There are only two cases of black and white, Cre uh, Gretel and Khalil. Now, I would add, I think it's actually three, because it's Mother Goose 2. Um, oh, clearly. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's, it's Khalil, Gretel, and Mother Goose. 
Um, but he goes on to say, there's a reason it's not the only two that come back to haunt Kaine in E in her memories. So this was a very good point. I, I really like that you brought this up. The bosses that you fight in ending E are, as, mm. aside from Hook, aside the from ones Hook. that she would feel guilty about killing. Hmm, interesting. So that's a good point. It's Gretel, yeah, that's it's good. Khalil and P33, um, and, and so those two bosses you fight and then you fight Hook, right? So it's mm. like the only bosses you fight in that sort of like reoccur in ending E are those ones where it's like, oh, those were the black and white scenarios, right? Mm. So I really like that you bring that up and that is a good point because the androids are trying to they're 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 trying to make her feel guilty. They're trying to torturing her emotions about this stuff, right? The androids yeah. are upset. Like you ended humanity and now relive it over and over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So very good point. Something I didn't, not that I didn't necessarily pick up on, but like I, I failed to connect it to what we were talking about last yeah. month. Um, he says you guys mistook it for a boss rush, which I don't think we did because we didn't say it was a boss rush. Like we didn't say you play all the bosses. Uh, in this ending E thing. We didn't say, every, you, now you fight all the bosses from the game. Yeah, I don't think so. At, at least, maybe I don't remember saying <laughs> well, that. Maybe I if did. I did, it was um, I misspoke, because you clearly don't. You, yeah. you don't fight you all the bosses. You just play some of them, which is yeah. enough to, to draw the connection between games that have you play the bosses again at the end. Yeah. I, I think it's enough. So, uh, I don't know. I, I guess yeah. that was a miscommunication, because I, I, I certainly didn't mistake it for a boss rush of all the bosses. Right. Um, he says it didn't have Rock, who, by the way, is a gestalted dog, not a human. We, uh, <laughs> we went over that. We went over that. <laughs> uh, it Thank didn't. You, it didn't have the boar. It didn't have the airy shapes. Now it didn't have the boar. Well, but you can't kill the boar. So yeah, you can't kill the how, boar. How would that true. have worked? That would have. That would have been crazy. That boss fight against the boar just goes on and on and on. There's no end. Yeah. There. Um, it didn't have the airy shades, but it had the actual villagers from her past. Right, and they were just kind of making fun um, of it. It had no bosses outside of Gretel, Khalil. Uh, the androids tell you why they picked these two. It's because of how Kaine felt about them, mm. right? Very good point. There's another scene they added uh, from the original that happens right after you kill Khalil. Gretel and Khalil, and I guess Louise, are the only times Kaine actually questions herself. The weight of accepting these were not monsters, accepting these were not monsters is too much to handle so she is in denial. Right. Even in E, the androids try to guilt trip her and she dismisses it. So they then send her worst enemy, Hook. All the other bosses have your actions being justified in some fashion. It was either self-defense or revenge. The backstory just means it sucks for everybody, not, oh, I guess you were a terrible person the whole time. Obviously not. The kids with Gretel don't understand what they are and they kill themselves because they run into the light, right, the sunlight. Mm. Which I guess Nier should have questioned. And for Khalil, the whole junk heap is about how irrational hatred makes someone, uh, no one is supposed to side with Gideon. His fate, or his hate infected Nier and us, uh, infected Nier and us into doing this pointless thing that we don't question either at first glance. Nier realizes it was wrong it's the only time he actually reacts the, that way in the whole game. Gideon is also the only important character of a fragment arc, not to get any proper cutscene for his adult self, because this game uses cutscenes to tie emotional beats to characters, and they wanted to separate Gideon from it as much as possible. There is a wall or a disconnect. Um, okay, hold on, there's just a little bit more. 
I'm gonna get through it. it it's long, but um, the, I'm trying to keep in mind everything I'm gonna respond to. You did correctly point out why shades don't bother uh, trying to communicate with replicants. They see them as soulless shells that are refusing to hand back their bodies. It's only a matter of time until gestalts relapse because of replicants becoming sentient. They do not want to cohabitate, they just want their bodies back. Mm -hmm. So for some of them, the sooner they die and get reborn, the less likely they are to develop a consciousness. As to why they're within human bodies in the area, I think they touch upon that in Grimoire Near, which by the way gets a new updated version on July 9th. So maybe wait for that date. What? Sorry, guys. <laughs> We're going to have to look at that. That's in like one week. It's like a week from now, exactly. Uh, we'll do an Just, update video. Yeah, maybe. Five minute video. That date of the next podcast, in case something important or something is added to that, right? Um, regarding D, Nier says he loves Kaine during the final boss fight. He wouldn't give up on someone he loves. He literally says that. Again, there are different interpretations even among the creators on this point. Uh, Yoko Taro it was not trying to be definitive about near having feelings for Kaine. We kind of went over that already. I think that there are several valid interpretations. I still don't really see near going through with D because he was, his mm. primary goal, as Taro explained, is saving Yona above everything else. Yeah. Everything else. It's, Yona's the most important. Yep. Yona has to be saved, or has been saved, that he knows. Of course, he'd give up his existence for Kainan. I don't really agree, but I think it's a valid interpretation that you're saying. True. He knows Kainan can watch over Yona, but why would he want her to? <laughs> and and uh, especially, like, Kainan might not want to, right? But right. Anyway. He thinks Yona is finally cured and she is safe from the Shadow Lord. Keep in mind, at the end, Yona is temporarily healed. She can stand, she can jump, she's smiling, she isn't coughing anymore, the black skull disappeared. In Nier's mind, he saved her. That's why he can go and let, uh, and then save Kainu. Okay, so there's really just like one sentiment, and this was shared by another person who was a mo a, one of the more disparaging commenters from the last video, that makes me need to kind of clarify something. Um, again, to clarify what I didn't say more than what I did say. Um, I'm not saying that the that the story of Nier is black and white based on what we get from Route B, right? I'm not saying that, like, as we have built up over every episode, this game is an attempt to, to get us to look past that kind of dichotomy of thinking, of thinking in black and white, that there are, there's a lot of morally gray, there's a lot more gray area yeah. out there. Yeah. When you see things from a different perspective, it changes how you think about it. Mm. And, and it's not as easy to separate what is right and what is wrong when you are seeing it from the other perspective. Yeah. That's the theme we've been building on from episode one of this. We've stated that over and over and over again. We clearly know that that is the intention, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody was thinking that somehow I was, I was trying to make the case that the story is black and white now, which I, is not what I was saying. What I was saying is, is that the execution of some, not all, but some, and I even mentioned like Louise's storyline is not this way. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that despite um, it having some elements of that in the, the recontextualization of facade, mm -hmm. there were still some very effective moments that worked mm -hmm. for me. I'm not saying the whole Route B fails. <laughs> That's not, 
at no. all what I intended to say. What I said was, and what I clarified by putting in an extra addendum edited in there, was more about how it came off as super melodramatic because we don't have a lot of time dedicated to like the shades to build them into real characters. Right. But they're so using- So they just go straight for the- Yeah. The way to tug at your heart. The excessively sentimental dialogue comes off a little corny and melodramatic to me because this recontextualization is, is and I, I don't even know if there's really like a great, like if I could offer a great like alternative for how it could be done. It's like oh, you'd, have, sure, to, you'd yeah. have to spend so much you have time. You'd make a whole separate game. Yeah, you have to, it's like you almost need short stories about the shades. Yeah. So that we understand yeah. the shades better. And so then like when the big moment happens, when the payoff happens, I can actually feel for that character because I, I mm. know that character. I believe in that character. Um, mm -hmm. But the, cr the criticism was not like all of Route B is this way. It was that there are enough scenarios in Route B, in particular the ones that bothered me were the Junk Heap with Khalil, the Hansel and Gretel, and the Mother Goose, where it just felt like this is too easy an answer in the recontextualization that mm -hmm. doesn't give the full weight to the idea of the theme, which is even good people, when they are convinced they are right, when they are too committed to a goal and they will not open their eyes to any other thing, they can still do great harm. That is the whole theme. In fact, yes. there was um, some other comments that we got on the last video as well that were kind of criticizing that general aspect of yes of um, like it's, it's never too late to do the right thing, right? Or yeah. any length you can go to do the right thing is, is acceptable. Sure. But that's only if you're convinced that what you're doing it's is right. the right thing and yeah. that there will be no negative external consequences. And oftentimes you're wrong that you aren't right. Um, yes. And even don't be so sure that you're the one who's right and you gotta change it. Even yeah. well-intentioned, good people, when you are too sure you mm -hmm. are right, and that you are willing, you have a consequentialist attitude, meaning yes. the ends justify the means. Yes, in all. Yeah. You will cause harm to people. Yeah. That is the point. Yes. Near, and there was someone who was trying to, they, they kind of, they, they really contradicted themselves, right? They, they basically got mad at me for something I didn't say. Of which course. Is that, which is that the See? game is, that somehow he was taking that I was trying to claim the game is black and white. And it was like, that's not what I'm claiming. But second of all, he then went on to say, Nier is a bad person, and that was intentional. And it's like, no, that is black and white. Yeah, that's, that's too black and white. Because you're, you're, you're not... You can't, you can't say the game is morally gray and then say Nier is a bad person. Right. That's in conflict. Yes. <laughs> Nier is not a bad person. <laughs> that's the whole point. Nier mm. is a good person, and he did terrible things because he was too committed to saving Yona, and he would not look at all of the clues along the way to show that there's something deeper here. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's a, an ambush. I don't care about this. Uh, there's so many moments, so many like little places of dialogue where it's like, I think it's in the junk heap where, um, I think like Emil brings something up like, 
You know, what is it about a robot and a shade living together? Isn't that strange? Mm. And, and Nier will say something, who cares, they need mm -hmm. to die. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to look at any of the potential problems to his goal. He's too committed to it and he's too sure that, he's that that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he won't look at it. Even a well-intentioned person, even a good person like Nier, who's willing to help so many people go out of, he's very selfless, go out of his way to help the people of the village and like all the good qualities. Even he will do terrible, harmful, evil things if yeah. he's too committed to this. Yeah. That is the theme of Nier. It is. And, and if I you think look he, at Yoko it... Yoko Taro even mentions that in this interview. He mentions yes. that if you, when you're convinced you're right, how far will you go? And that's like... Well, it's something along those lines. That's, but, yeah. that's what the theme is exploring. And so to yeah. me, the recontextualization of three scenarios, not all of them, but of three of them, does not do justice to the weight of that theme because it makes it feel too black and white. It mm -hmm. makes Nier look like a bad person when right. he's not. Now, I do agree that perhaps the takeaway from this should be not, no, Nier's a bad person, mm -hmm. but that, oh, that situation really sucks. They didn't understand each other. Mm -hmm. I believe that that's what was intended to be the takeaway. Sure. I just feel like but the if execution... Only, if only they could communicate, or if only they yeah. would be willing to communicate, then a lot of pain yeah. could have maybe been avoided. This maybe is, not. Maybe not. This is a criticism of technique yeah. and execution, not of concept or idea, right? I wish those scenarios were not quite so simplistic to give weight to the complexity of mm -hmm. this idea. That's all I'm really saying. Fair enough, yeah. And so some of the B scenarios didn't work for me for that reason, and they still don't, despite the added context people are giving. Um, that's all. Okay. Hopefully that's clear enough. Hopefully people understand what I did not say. <laughs> Clear enough. Good work. Okay. This one comes from V. Yoko Taro has uh, never said that killing is bad or that that's the message of Nier. He once said that he used to think that someone that killed dozens and hundreds of people had to be a psycho in reference to Kain. But years later, he realized that that's not necessarily true, but rather than being a psycho, that person had to think what they're doing is right and that's what's happening in Nier. He doesn't kill people because he's a psycho, but because he thinks he's good and the noble and right. We just kind of went over that. I think we yeah. just gave a response to that. We understand that. And I think it was you who had mentioned something about like killing is never right or something like that. Uh, um, yeah, because it seems, and it's not that he said that, it's just that it seems like he is trying to push us towards a pacifist-like perspective. Yeah. And fair enough, very, very few games do that. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, clarification on that point. Yeah, it was like um, a subtext thing. This one comes from Team Attack. First off, excellent analysis, guys. I absolutely love these. Second, I'd like to point out that nobody takes into account the name near. Oh, I kind of went over this one. The name near and its thematic addition to this oh, game and the story. Yeah. Near essentially means no or to deny in French, and I feel like it fits the nihilistic tone rather well. We kind of went, went we over We talked that. about it at the beginning. So. And I, I, I like it. I like it. I'm not sure if that was intended, but I like it anyway. But it's good. Um, this one comes from M. Tatnall. I don't think you're necessarily supposed to feel guilty as you replay the boss fights and realize who and what you're killing. 
and the lack of malicious motivation most shades have toward you. Nier as a protagonist is supposed to represent the shift in ideas from you have to be a monster to kill uh, the way an RPG protagonist does to you just have to think you're right. I don't think your feeling about the shades uh, matters so much as the point that Nier even presented with the loss of morally gray or fully innocent life does not step off the path he's chosen. Well, it, as in a story sense, you're right, but yeah. it's, and um, playthrough B, Nier is still going through it the first time as far as playthrough B is concerned. Right. It's the player that's going through it again. Yes. And the player is supposed to feel bad. Uh, there, I, I don't see any other reason why Yoko Taro hammers these things home unless he is trying to get you to feel bad. Like, what other reason is there for him to constantly it's, be think, showing the humanity and don't kill my children while you're killing the children? I, okay, so I think... He's trying to evoke an emotion in the player, yes, which is, I shouldn't I, be doing this. I think, right? I think the emotion, and I, I, I'm starting to understand why this came across the wrong way. And this is something I have to kind of always check myself on mm. in, in the way I use a critical voice. Because when you do that, Sometimes maybe you're using an exaggeration and, and it's not meant to be taking fully literally what you're mm -hmm. saying, right? But right, it is because you're being critical. So I agree and I, I used these words and so I'm rescinding it now. See, aren't you, don't you feel guilty about what you did, guy? Like that's the kind of yes. thing I said last yes, time. Yes, yes. That is not what Yoko Taro was intending with the scenes. And I didn't mm -hmm. mean to insinuate that's what he meant. I meant to insinuate that's how it comes across. That's what happens whether he... That's how yeah. it feels right. when you're playing it to me. Sure. I don't think that's what he wanted you to feel. I don't think he wants you to feel like you were a bad person or that you right. were wrong. He wants you to feel, oh no, I didn't realize that and that really sucks. Mm. To some degree, he is also trying to get you to stop playing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In a weird way, he's trying to get you to stop playing this game. So... I, I say this to say M. Tatnall and the other people bringing up kind of the similar point. Mm. You are correct. I agree with you. I, it was the wrong way to put it sure. when I said it like that. Sure. Because it does insinuate that I thought the intention was to make you feel I bad. I see that, yeah, yeah. But that's not really what I was trying to say. <laughs> I'm just trying to say it comes across that way. The execution of it, despite its intention, came across like that because there is not enough nuance in this recontextualized scenario mm -hmm. to give weight to the theme. Yeah, there wasn't enough time. That is how I felt about it. But I don't believe that Taro wanted you to feel like you're bad or that Nier is bad, but that rather you didn't or Nier didn't, not you, because Nier, you're, you're not really Nier. Like, Nier is his own character. That's kind of mm -hmm. the, the separation of the RPG we talked about last night. Mm -hmm. Nier was too dedicated and he wouldn't see. He wouldn't look at it correctly. Mm -hmm. Or he wouldn't look at it deeply, I should say. And so, it sucks that this was actually what was going on behind the scenes. Right. So, yeah. Um, Nier as a character has constructed a goal or motivation that sees him uh, through hardship and tragedy, killing Shades, defeating the Shadow Lord, rescuing his sister. He does all of this at the cost of spending actual time with his sister, at the cost of what you later learn are human souls, ultimately at the cost of his own original soul, Gestalt. The Machine Shade fight is the only one we really have where it's pushed to the extreme of this, this is a child who did nothing wrong. Again, I disagree with the babies in Mother Goose. 
Um, and even Khalil, the, the, or not Khalil, the, the Hansel and Gretel one just mixed up. I don't think the point is for us, the player, to feel bad. I think the point is to know that a character like Kaine knows it's a kid and says nothing. A character like Nier has all of these hints and he's doing something, that he's doing something wrong or outright watches his decisions destroy a village and it won't stop him from pursuing the thing he has chosen at this point of his existence. I think the fact that some people play through it a few times and knowing one or both sides don't feel bad isn't in conflict with the point. Um, when I was playing the second time, I didn't think the point was to feel bad for the Shades or feel bad about my actions. The point was that Nier is locked onto his quest and he doesn't have all the information. And by the time we get to the Airy, he flat out tells us that he doesn't, that he doesn't want to look back, does not want the information. The information would not change his goals. So I reacted emotionally when it meant for the or to what it meant for the characters and not really for the Shades. So I didn't feel taken out of it or disappointed personally. So, reiterating the point, I badly, badly worded that in a sarcastic way that I meant as an exaggeration, but that clearly got taken literally by people. So hopefully that has been cleared up now. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so I apologize for that. I will try to be more careful in the future about using that voice because it, it just kind of opens the door for misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one comes from Jace1551. In respect to the moment at this time code, I just want to mention that in the Japanese version, all Tiran says is Nani. So remember where I said like, uh, where she's like, It is. Yeah, yeah it, it is. Nani. Nani. He says Nani, which means like, what? Kind yeah. of, right? Like, mm -hmm. what the maybe? Yeah, what? It just means what? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, so it is, is more of a localization thing than yeah. him actually having a sudden change of heart. Good point. Good. There's actually a lot of that. I took a couple of notes um, talking about, there's, a, there's one uh, particular part um, right up here where uh, when Popola and Devla are telling uh, Mir that Kaine has to leave and yeah. can't stay there, or that Kaine and Emil both have to leave, um, Nier says in English, he says, this is crap and you know it. Yeah. But in Japanese, he says, demo. And that's it, demo, which means mm. but. Da, da, da. Oh. But they, in, in English, they were like, they put in this big long sentence that he did not say. Yeah, <laughs> they took a lot of liberties. I don't mind them though, I really don't. I, I, I think it's, um, I think it was fascinating. I think they did a good job altogether. All yeah. But there were a lot of those. Uh, also, when Emil leaves, um, in English, she says, well, see you later, after it was like, hey, you got to go be outside forever, you can't be in the village. Uh, but in the Japanese, he says very excitedly, we'll be waiting outside in, mm. the, in the Japanese. He says, okay, oh, now it's okay, Nier, we'll leave. All right. And you're like, okay, see ya. And he's like, we'll be waiting outside. He's more excited, whereas in the English, he's more like, well, see you later, like mm. not Different. as excited. But Emil's yeah. stoked about camping out with Kaine. So yeah. in the Japanese, it comes across a little bit different. Okay. Um, and then the last part of this was basically a correction on the Kaine Tiran berserking thing at the end, which we already went over. Oh, yeah. Um, how he was going to turn into a relapsed Gestalt, which is the problem, is that Tiran yeah. would take over, but he would be relapsed. And so to save Kaine, you got to kill her or use yeah. your existence to wipe away so that Tiran will be removed and she can go back to being a normal human. Uh, anyway, that is it. Um, so now to wrap up, uh, let's give a kind of our final thoughts and feelings on uh, the game. 
And wow. uh, kind of a final analysis now that we know all of the background and we've got it all figured out and it all connects. Got the details worked out. It's all ironed out. We understand it. That <laughs> um, More or less. So I guess, what would you say, like part one, what would you say is the biggest strength or weakness of Nier? Mm. And then how did you feel about um, its execution on theme and human content? Well, that's interesting because for part one of your question, I actually think theme is the strongest mm. point of the whole game. Yeah. Um, that I feel like Yoko Taro did a very good job of um, conveying the theme, the, the general, if you believe you're right, that you know, you're just gonna do whatever you want to in order to achieve your ends, right? And comparing it to some concurrent, you know, events within our world. I feel like that was actually done extremely well. Uh, better than most games, just in general. Unless, for, for, for being uh, a little bit more complicated of a theme, I guess. Yeah. It's not as, as um, you know, simple as, as some games, I guess. But I feel like it did a really good job on that end. Um, to the extent that it didn't do a good job, um, I don't know, I don't actually know how to answer that one. Because <laughs> there are things that it didn't do super great. But, like, I, all in all, it's a really good game. Um, I, I will say that I wish that this this all, I'm not, I'll just say I'm not a huge fan of multiple endings, just in general. Okay. Um, put your story into a thing that I can understand and, and, and don't make me play your game again <laughs> in order to get more of the story. Now, Yoko Taro is very unique. He, not everyone does this and people like the fact that he does it and it gives people, like having four endings is like, eh, I didn't like these two, this one was all right, but I, this one was my favorite. That yeah. way you can kind of have the ending you want to. Sure. You can just imagine it however you want, right? Um, but now that I guess there's five endings. But um, in general, it's I kind of I kind of want to. So sometimes I'll be telling my daughter a story at night, and then I'll finish the story up, and she'll not want the story to be over, and she'll be like, "But I wanted this other thing to happen." Oh, I, I thought the bear was gonna die. I'm like, I don't wanna kill you, the bear in the story. And she's like, yeah, but, but then the T-Rex eats him. I'm like, okay, so I, I gotta go back, retell the ending of the story, and then now it goes off in a different direction. You know, the That's bear's funny. dead, and then the T-Rex choked on him or something. That's All funny. right. So then I have to kind of change my story, um, and it, it's, and that's me telling the story and I don't want to tell a story of multiple endings. But in general, it's like one of them is the ending, right? And Yoko Taro doesn't necessarily let you know that, oh, this is the ending. This is the true yeah. ending. This is the, it, there's certain games he's built off of, other games off of, but each of these endings could theoretically have his, its own game within the Yoko Taro universe, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I, I don't even want to say that he didn't do it well. He did multiple endings pretty well, I suppose. I just don't like. I don't like that he thought of it to begin with. <laughs> so. You just don't like having to play the same thing. Yeah, it's tedious. Times. It's yeah. it's tedious, and it's um it's not a strong point of video games in general. The repetitive nature of video games is yeah. not something that I love about video games. Yeah. So and it's not a direct critique against Yoko Taro himself necessarily, but you know. It, it's worth noting that this is handled a little better in Automata. Though even in because you can play heard. as 9s in Route B, yeah, it's a separate. So it's character. a little differently, even though you're playing yeah. the same levels and same bosses again. You're a different character with a different ability. If at the even, least there even, was a different character, I would have made it different enough. Yeah, if you played Kine in Route B, it would have it would have been a different this, enough to some game. Yeah. yeah, even even in Automata though, I was I did feel a little like because that was the first Taro game I had. Yeah, it was that I think a lot of people that I story. had really played in depth. Like yeah. again, I had played near 
but yeah, I had first look. But right? I hadn't. Yeah. I, I did like a first look on it. Yeah. I didn't beat the game, so I hadn't seen how he does multiple endings. Yeah, yeah. This was the first time I finished a Taro game and saw this particular concept, and it was like, why am I playing the same freaking thing again? I don't get this. Like, what is the point? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it can be a little tedious. I do. I don't love it, but the people love it, and I owe more power to you. That's that's just great. Um, I want one one single story told in one. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Anything else? No, uh, well, that'd be about it. And I guess to, to the extent of the theme, I mean, what was the specific question there? Oh, do you, how do you feel it was executed? Uh, yeah. But you kind of, I guess you kind of I feel like it's about the strongest point of the whole game yeah. was, was the way that they conveyed the theme. Um, I love the story. I mean, I love so much about the game. It was surprising. It was surprisingly really good. Yeah. Um, but to the, to, to the theme specifically, I thought it was an interesting theme, and I feel like they eh, nailed it home pretty well, you know? Cool. It wasn't very vague. It was pretty... Pretty direct and pretty powerful too. Yeah, um, I would say like the strongest suit of the game for me uh, is probably like its its use of music to mm. really nail. And we haven't talked about music that much, but Not to much really much. like nail certain moments of like emotional impact, like when when like at a pinnacle moment when like the theme is being mm. delivered it's like the music is used in a way where it just like it, it can really capture the right feeling kind of taro's separation of content versus oh, feeling sure. in the player yeah like whether it's even in places where i was like you know i'm not necessarily sure how i felt about it like when the wolves were all <laughs> massacred and slaughtered and dying right. right like the music that's playing underneath that really helps mm. And, and this is mm. something that like mm. other directors, like um, Tetsuya Takahashi on Xenigers, he, he says specifically like, I was feeling very concerned that the game was not coming together, the story was not coming together like I had envisioned or hoped. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Yasunori Mitsuda's music goes mm. in there and I just, it just worked. Nice. And there's like such a like powerful, for me, connection between like, if you have the wrong music <laughs> in the scene, like it can really, really deter mm -hmm. the emotion you're supposed to feel or get from it. And this soundtrack I felt like really helped to deliver on those moments. Like another really great moment for music uh, is when you're fighting Popola and, uh, and Devola at the end of the game. And especially if you had done the, the quest earlier, where you get them to sing together. Yes, at the tavern. At yeah. the tavern. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, the, and that song that Devola plays, it actually has a harmony that, yeah. that Popola can bring into it. And it's really beautiful. Yeah, right? it's beautiful. Really like another, like an elevation of the piece. And when you fight them in kind of like that final struggle, it's like Devola and Popola singing together. Mm. And it's like, it, it feels so tragic that you have to fight them. Yeah. And it's like the music just really, really delivers that. Even though, like, I might not have necessarily loved that scene for reasons we talked about in, like, episode two, I think. Right. But the soundtrack complements the almost, like, melancholy, the nihilism, the hopelessness, but also the hope in the hopelessness mm -hmm. of Nier's story, of mm -hmm. finding purpose in the purposelessness of it. Mm -hmm. Like, that soundtrack, like, the like I said, the melancholic nature of it like really hammers that. Yeah. Just totally nails it. Mm. And um, it always, I just feel like the music is always right. 
and alongside that great theme that you talked about, um, it, it's, it's a game that can really, really pull at your heartstrings in effective ways. And so I think that on the whole, Taro's goal of inciting the right emotion in the player is almost always working. Yeah. So I really felt like that to me was kind of like my, my favorite part of the strongest element um, of, of the game. Weakness, the uh, greatest weakness for me, and this is a, a bit of uh, repeat repetition of what I already said, mm. but I, I think I'll try and put it maybe in another way. It's it's it can be a little overt at times, a little on mm. the nose, a little heavy-handed sure. yeah. in how it's in how it's going about uh, delivering on what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, like, okay, I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to say here that like there's a comparison between a children's show and Mirror. Mirror is, I'm not saying that, but in children's TV, you have to be very overt with the moral of the yes, story, you do, right? Yeah. So it's like, you'll have a whole episode and at the end, the, the, the group mm -hmm. all comes together and they go, what did we learn? Yes, and exactly. they like, Barney and friends, like they yeah. have to like sing a song about it and mm -hmm. <laughs> they, have, they have to make it and crystal clear yeah. with absolutely no room mm -hmm. to misinterpret what this episode was about. Yeah. Right, because children need that. They, they yeah. can't see the subtlety and the nuance. They can't read between the lines yet to right. like pick up on it. I feel like at times, again, not all the time, not even most of the time, it, seldom, but at key moments, I felt like Nier was a little too overt. It, 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 it was too on the nose. It was too obvious mm. what it was trying to say to you. Right. And that undermined the weight and the nuance of its theme, which to me is really important. It's a really important thing that I think a lot of people need to think about more. I think so, and it's, it's something video games don't often address, yes. that particular. Yes. Because video games are always about killing. Because in many cases. <clears throat> because you're right. In many cases, it's not too overt, and the theme is very subtly expressed, and it's really good <clears throat> most yeah. of the time. There's just some parts where I felt like it it was too overt. Mm. So um, that was what I would say would probably be the greatest weakness of it for me. But that's, I think that's just kind of a commonality in a lot of Japanese media. Oh, sure. Like, I see it a lot in anime. The heavy I see anime. it a lot yeah, yeah. in RPGs. And they, the anime. soliloquies that really explain and really kind of hammer home yeah. what the theme is. It's a little too obvious. Yeah, sure. Uh, I would like, they I would that personally prefer a little more subtlety. Um, a little less melodrama in a cinematic experience. Right? Sure, to, to clarify that from earlier. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, we've already talked about. I thought the theme was very resonant, very important, very relevant to you know what we're seeing, what we're dealing with in real life. Yeah, and uh, for the most part, very well delivered. So, I loved this game. Yeah. Um, it's among, it's among my pantheon of favorite games. Yeah, it's, it's up in the stars <laughs> It's up in there somewhere, yeah. yeah it, it makes it despite, and, and I, I particularly really like playing the replicant version because it just yeah, feels so good. much better. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the new remastered version just feels so good to move and run and fight. and um, it's, it's like the game side of it is now matching the story side of it. Whereas before, like the game it was- a, Yeah, it was a bit lopsided. A little bit. <laughs> So, um, yeah, absolutely recommend it. I, I love it to death. And um, this has been a blast uh, yeah, talking it about great. it for these last 
12 hours or whatever it's been. <laughs> you know what? I got to say, though, man. Emil might be one of my favorite characters just of all time. Of all like, time. Ever. Like, he is just that good. He is he is my uh, possibly my absolute favorite character ever. He's just so... <laughs> I don't know how they could have done better with him with his strengths and his weaknesses and his awkwardness and all that stuff. It's just yeah. so, so beautiful. Yeah. Characters are just great in general. Yeah, I think great, there was somebody who commented who said, uh, while Automata might be, like, better executed in this or that way or whatever... Like there's something about the highs, the the characters in this one mm -hmm. that just I don't know they get to me yeah. a little more than the than the um, the android characters of Automata, and mm -hmm. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, the characters are great. It's a great cast. I I would say Kaine was my favorite character from this game yeah. in particular, but it, but in particular it's that connection of Kaine and Emil that's just so I know. charming. Yeah, yeah, it's something. Really, really like it. So that's it, guys. Thank you for watching our near uh, story analysis. It's it's been great. We look forward to even more uh, responses in the comments. So you know we'll look at them and try to respond to them as we can. Um, as I said, I don't know for certain as of this particular <laughs> moment. Someone could come in and sway the whole thing. <laughs> but I do. Some hackers could come in. I do feel 99% certain we're going to be talking about Xenogears next week. Yeah. And I am still kind of trying to decide how to tackle that. I talked about it with you a little bit on the phone. Yeah, it could potentially. But there's a lot. I am <laughs> worried that if we do it that way, That's it would too be long. too boring and we're not getting into the game soon enough. So I want to pose yeah. this for the audience. My initial thought was, why don't we spend three episodes laying the groundwork to understand Xenogear's story before we actually jump into the game. Right. Which is where we would do a whole episode on like Jewish mysticism yeah. and like uh, theological or, or, or you know mythological references. Yeah, that'll be great. Uh, one episode on uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and Nietzschean uh, philosophy. Yeah. And Jungian, Jungian. <laughs> Jungian. Like uh, Theory, theory I guess, <laughs> right? His um, psychoanalysis stuff. And then a whole episode on like dev history and, and Soria Saga and Tetsuya Takahashi, the husband okay. and wife pair that made the game. Mm. But is then that, I'm is thinking that be too much? that's like almost a whole month where we're not even playing anything. Yeah. So now my second thought is maybe we should just bring that stuff up when it's relevant in the story. Okay. Maybe we should just do a first episode on background and, and like dev history. Sure, and, and then jump into the game, two, just start playing. and then when the points become relevant, when it becomes confusing, because this is going to be yeah. your first time playing Xenogears. I think Xenogears. that's a good idea. I think we should do that. I'm a Xenogears vet of yeah, sorts. Yeah, veteran. There are many more super vets out there. I'm not yeah. a super vet. Well, I'm sure we'll find them. But as we, because it, it might be nice to see mm. the first reaction of somebody who might not necessarily like have the full... Groundwork that's a laid. good. That, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, I just made a decision. Exactly. No, it's right. no longer posed to so you. Gameplay. Gameplay will start. So our first episode. episode yeah, our first episode will be a dev history, and then our second episode will jump straight into the game. Yeah. So look forward to that. Xenogears. Unless somehow Final Fantasy X upsets it, which I don't foresee happening, but we could, I guess. There's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. Thanks, guys. We'll see you again soon. Peace out.